Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Inyash Brodsky. I'm Steven Zuber. I'm Jess Dickey. And I'm Matt Freeman. Welcome back, Matt Freeman. Thank Yay, you very much. Matt's here. Matt, uh, so most people probably know you as the guy from We've Got Worm, We've Got Ward, and the Doofcast. Uh, and also soon coming up, um, what's the new Dark Tower one called? Kingslingers. Kingslingers, yeah. right. This time I will be the <laughs> Scott and Scott will be the Matt. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be so weird. Yeah. Uh, but we had you on before, was it just once? We had. Uh, I came to talk about uh, rational parenting once and then another time. I feel like we ended up talking a lot about community, although it was supposed to be, I think, to talk about seeing like a state. Mm. Okay. <laughs> That's kind of... Uh appropriate though yeah <laughs> i did yeah i remember you didn't get to talk too much about the rational parenting because you had that terrible migraine that yeah. hit you which although update you don't have those anymore really not nearly as bad yeah it's much more uh easily handled uh, due to the progressive technology and transhumanist development and so forth so now i'm i'm mostly fixed which is which is nice fucking awesome. awesome not transhuman yet but trans matt of three years ago yes. yeah on the way awesome <laughs> Uh, I, I was curious how the rationalist parenting thing is coming along. Um, you know, I don't put a lot of conscious energy into engineering their lives, but I do certain things like um, I got a 3D printer and they really like Marvel. And so we're basically very slowly building like an Iron Man suit. Um, <laughs> basically, the purpose just being they think it's cool and it gets them exposed to all this technology and, and science concepts. And I'll just like blather about the engineering behind what we're doing and if they pick any of it up great and if not we're still having fun and it's <laughs> that's kind of what it's all about so I, I try to do more stuff like that and less like all right today we're going to sit down in a circle and practice our <laughs> our catechism from yeah. the sequences yeah um i might work up to that at some point but <laughs> so that's that's basically it sounds like unschooling almost i mean they're definitely going to normal school but yeah uh, just kind of doing things through play because like they're not going to pay attention and they, they're going to be annoyed and they're going to go they're going to groan yeah. if you try to lecture them you know so uh, at, at the ages they are anyway do you have any opinion i i only bring this up because uh wes is very active on the discord so i see his comments a lot uh do you have any opinions on the whole unschooling thing do you think it's a terrible idea i don't think it's idea? I, I don't think it's a terrible idea i think it depends on the kid and and the situation in general, um, I, I'm I'm sure it works great for some kids. I I kind of feel like it might have worked for me, but I definitely feel like I know some people that it wouldn't have worked for at all. And um, I don't know, you know, it, it. I think you have to have a certain kind of infrastructure in place to even make it work. Um, I haven't thought about it seriously because uh, I don't know how that would work with three kids so closely spaced together in age. Like, plus, some, yeah, yeah. Lots of factors, basically. Yeah. Plus, you would need someone to watch them during the day while you're at work. Exactly, and that school the, does that. That's probably the, the deal yeah. breaker. Actually, is like the 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 function of school as daycare is. Yeah, that's like the viable. structure mm -hmm. part of that. Yeah. Yeah. If I ever have kids, I'd really like to do the unschooling thing, but then yeah, it's also what you never you know whether or not you're going to. Yeah, I mean, like you you have to have a parent to stay at home with them. Mm -hmm. would be great is if we had a big rationalist group house and one person that like didn't have to work anymore and they could just you know daycare well, the kids uh long-term goals yeah yeah which uh could that be a segue into our topic it could possibly if that is our topic 
I don't know. Um, I, well, <laughs> See, the problem is I haven't thought about this topic at all because I thought that uh, Stephen wanted to do a 10-year retrospective thing. But on the other hand, like, if Matt's here and you guys want to talk about the uh, the thing, community thing, we could. Could merge those things together and I just think... say, like, w- w- how the community has progressed over the past 10 years and where we want to see it go. That'd be, yeah. well, I'd be interested in talking about that. Personally. That sounds good to me. Cool. Once we get to the future part of the present. Yeah. Okay. Um, so in that case, Stephen, you pitched this to us. Um, I will be frank. The, the half the reason, the other reason I invited Matt was because uh, you sent out this cool email uh-huh. that was like, you you have uh, it was like a kind of an open journal thing. Oh yeah, and you were keeping track of like here's where, what my goals were in 2013. Oh, I realized that was not structured enough to like actually track progress. Here they were in 2014 and 15, and then it was just you actually like regimented in a way that at least more than anyone else I knew, like actual goals and progress over the last 10 years. Shit. And so I just thought it'd be kind of fun. I don't know. It's a lot's happened in the last decade, which I guess that's true for literally everybody. Um, <laughs> and every decade. Yes, exactly. So uh, much always happens. Yeah. But, you know, it doesn't have to be all this boring personal stuff. But um, huh? yeah, I, I didn't have like a lot on the subject. I just thought it would be a kind of a fun just first episode. Oh, yeah. This is the first time we're recording in 2020 because we split yeah. the... Uh, um 100th episode into two parts so yeah yeah and sorry again for the audio quality on that we we have learned from our mistakes hopefully i I thought it was fine we learned a little bit anyway yeah it's going to continue to be probably a weird work in progress but we'll we'll just gradually get better as one does yeah seems like that's gonna happen when you do weird stuff involving people calling in and such i'm i'm kind of surprised you write down your goals because i don't know i've never had the courage to write down my goals because then there's no evidence i failed at them (laughs) yeah i I can explain this i mean since i wrote a thing about it like this is connected to the fact that uh like i guess it was like seven years ago now uh me and and a handful of my friends uh we wanted to keep in better touch after college and so we would do this like bi-weekly or maybe it was monthly uh, Skype call where we would just like talk about like some topic that we'd agreed on beforehand um, in, in a very real sense this eventually evolved into doof but cool. <laughs> but uh, it was mainly just a, a thing to keep us together and like I started like one, one time we were like we should have we should have like a New Year's goal thing where we all have New Year's goals and we hold each other to them and mm-hmm. I was like the only one who took this seriously mm-hmm. um, but then I started like giving the monthly updates on my goals and then I just kept doing that for seven years. Um, <laughs> Did anybody else get inspired by this and also start doing it? Not really. Although oh. I eventually posted on Less Wrong about it and people <clears throat> were like, this is an awesome idea. I'm going to try it. I don't know if anyone's <laughs> tried it there either. But um, that this is the closest thing I have to like a journal is like a, a monthly kind of roundup of like, what have I been thinking about? And what has my progress been on whatever I wanted to do? And I, I guess like the, the thing that I wrote in the thing that I sent to Steven and all the patreon patrons was like i have this i haven't quite solved the problem yet which is kind of embarrassing because it's been seven years but like the first year i had like 10 very specific goals and then the next year i react i like reacted to that i was like that was stupid i'm just gonna have like three kind of general focus areas i want to dwell on and then the next year i was like that was stupid i i I couldn't tell if i accomplished anything because how do you know if you (laughs) accomplished anything if it's just a general focus area i need five very concrete goals and then the next year i like i just like kept seesawing like (laughs) and i never at any point like still i'm I'm not i i don't know what i should do now should i pick concrete goals or should i have (laughs) a general area that i focus on the nice thing about concrete goals is at least you know if you accomplish them so 
you could always just keep waffling back and forth between the two. Seems that's to have true. worked out so far. That's true. Yeah. One year work on very specific things. One year, you know, on general bettering. Yeah. Not a bad idea. I think I've, when I have tried to make New Year's resolutions, I will try to pick a kind of a combination of the thing you were talking about where it's like one or two specific goals that I feel like I will make. Uh, I, I hate the SMART acronym. I guess that's the specific, measurable, etc. Um, mm-hmm. But like it does kind of make sense where it's like by this time I want to have achieved this and this amount. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some more vague ones where it's like I want to do this more. I want to like be able to point myself towards this thing a bit. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I always I think kinda, having a combo is nice. I always kind of hated New Year's resolutions because I thought um, my thinking was if you want to do something, you actually want to do it. So you go out and do it. And making a resolution is more like I want to want to do this. So then you just beat yourself up all year about <laughs> not actually doing it. Whereas if you wanted to do it, you wouldn't even need to make a resolution. You just well, go and do the thing. The art of wanting to want is really important, though. There's... I mean, um, I've described my, I've been trying to break down the process that I have used to improve for various people that are like interested in what I did. Um, it's hard to go back and think about what I did, but like some of the things do have this very complicated structure where it's kind of like, I was describing it as I kind of had this goal far in the distance that I'll occasionally joke about, well, I want to be a scientist and then I'll kind of side eye it and I'll be like, lol, whatever, and slowly just sort of inch towards it, but like by tricking myself <laughs> into like not really being that intimidated by the fact that I'm doing it until I get close enough to it that I'm not scared of it anymore. Mm. That's a really like complicated way of explaining the thing that I do, but there is something really intimidating about facing a very like long term difficult goal that feels um pretty hard to achieve and scary and i don't know some people probably naturally are just like yeah i'm gonna do that thing and then they just can throw all of their energy and self-esteem on the line like that uh i can't i when i when i wanted to write the book i just kind of sat down wrote the book because i wanted to (laughs) now i want to get back into writing because it's been a while and i've fallen out of it and you know there were there were reasons for that but now I feel like I have this goal of getting back into writing and it is almost anti-motivating. Mm, I'm yeah. like, ugh, I don't, I don't want to start working on that yet. I'm just going to wait a little longer. And Yeah, it's... you want your goals to not be aversive. Yeah. Like you're comparing yourself to this future you that seems unattainable. Mm-hmm. But, uh... I've probably given like $200 to be minder due to <laughs> failing because I, I tend to especially like on those years when I have the really specific goals I'll set up a bunch of b-minders and it's a horrible idea like and I kind of like the concept of b-minder but all it ends up doing is just like I'm convinced this is like part of the whole headaches thing is like is I like grind myself into doing the thing that I kind of like meta want to do but don't actually ever want to do in the moment and it causes a lot of stress and internal conflict and friction and just like something like you know you want to get better at playing an instrument or whatever and it's like okay but practicing to get better is never actually fun (laughs) (laughs) playing songs is fun and so you're basically just making yourself do something terrible yeah and and it's it it eventually breaks down and that's i think that is one kind of learning that i can take away from years of, of iterating on this process and it sounds just like you kind of arrived at a similar conclusion that like 
if you want to if you want to kind of get yourself to do something that you don't really want to do, you have to go about it in a pretty tricky, circuitous fashion. Yeah. I'm pretty sure all the guitarists that I've seen interviews with never really um, disliked practicing. They just liked noodling around on the guitar and they found that fun and they got better just doing what they thought was fun. I have a yeah something to say about that. Um, so the, the most aversive part of learning a new skill is being really bad at it and having it be completely incomprehensible and like pushing yourself to do it and just making no progress. So when we learn skills, a lot of that process happens when we're a kid and everything feels like that when you're a kid. Hmm. But when you're a kid, you don't have the pressure of you should be good at things. When you're a kid, it's like you're a kid. Of course, you suck at everything. Like do whatever you want, you know, play. People encourage you to play with a guitar. So when you're a kid, you're like, if somebody gives you a guitar, your family plays guitar and you're just like screwing around with the guitar, being terrible at it. Nobody like thinks that you're a terrible person because of that. I mean, that's how I basically learned programming yeah that's how i learned art i mean like but around with stuff somebody gives you something you're a kid and it doesn't matter being bad but when you're an adult being bad at something and taking a long time to get good at it just feels terrible Hmm. because we're adults now and we're supposed to be good at things and we're supposed to be able to be more logical at approaching it we're supposed to have that self-discipline that's stupid yeah it is i don't remember being a kid i imagine that's probably what it was like learning (laughs) stuff but Steven was old since the day he was born. Basically, um, that and I just, I, I mentioned before, my autobiographical memory is terrible. Like I couldn't give a range unless it's a very specific thing, like usually within like plus or minus two years. Um, but my, uh, my my only way of like achieving goals, as long as that's the subject, I need like an external motivating factor. And part of that actually I got from reading uh Cialdini's influence science and practice Mm. and the like the public commitment and consistency I use all the time for myself and so like if I don't feel like putting together notes for we want more or something I'm like well no we're recording in a couple days and it has to come out on Monday so like no it's going to get done Mm -hmm. and I if there's if there's any public commitment to do it I don't think i'm trying to think of any time recently where i've like flaked on something or failed to do something that i committed to doing publicly um certainly i don't like miss obligations that i made with people you know uh i can't even think of of anything that's come up in the last year where i've been stopped from doing something i wanted like i said i'll be there be there meet somebody and i totally forget or something um yeah when it comes to like learning hard things i'm not a self-driven person so like since i wanted to get into programming the option, I mean, there's if you're a self-motivated person with the energy to get started and maybe a couple of good resources that someone points in your direction just from ground up, you can totally get going and do it yourself. I'm not that guy, so I found a boot camp, and I also didn't have a job, so I spent, I was able to spend like 100 hours in the eight weeks or so, but well, no, I don't know, whatever, yeah, a couple months, that sounds about right, um, doing prep work and this and that, but I chosen in-person boot camp in no small part because i'd have to go there every day and do it Mm -hmm. um now that i work from home three days three or four days a week i have no trouble staying motivated because like now and even like learning new stuff for my job it's it's easier because the the stick is there and it's like if i don't learn this i don't get to keep my job like it's never you know that's never been a threat but it's like figure this out now you have to because you're getting paid to do it that's that's plenty enough motivation for me to, to learn stuff now but um Speaking about not having energy for things, 
I have like a whole new level of respect for you. And I mean, like I never disrespected you. <laughs> like you're, you're awesome. And I respect you a lot. I'm going to read into that. Okay, <laughs> good. But, uh, I, so I'm not sure if I mentioned it on the podcast, but I managed to, uh, injure my back a few months ago, uh, while doing squats in bad form. Note on everybody. Don't get lazy about your form. Um, but, uh, fewer reps with less weight is better than like more weight with worse form. So, yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. But, um, I, I herniated a disc, and I'm going in for surgery next week on Wednesday, which is great and all. Huzzah. Uh, but the past two weeks, I have not been able to be on any of the anti-inflammatories, the good drugs, you know? And it is remarkable how hard it is to do anything when you're in constant pain. I just, I have no motivation. I don't want to do shit. I, I can't even, like, think of doing stuff. And I'm like, oh my god. Like, Stephen has this intermittently his whole life. Like how how you get things done like blows my mind now. Uh, I'm feeling embarrassed and spotlit on that. Oh shit! I, sorry. No, no. It, I I I in a in a polite way. I I appreciate what you're saying. It, it's not nearly as heroic or gallant as it sounds. And your discomfort is no doubt worse than what I'm going through. Um, it's I at some point you just like I well not I can't generalize. The way that it worked for me was when it became apparent that there was like no viable treatment options to like fix it. It was like, all right, well then what are my uh, like non physiological things I can do to fix it? Um, you know, like I do nightly PT. Um, I am constantly like aware of like form and, and come, you know, all this and that. Um, but mainly it's just, uh, in fact, Matt knows more about the terminology and stuff than I do. Cause he directed me to an app that had all this cool uh, vocabulary about it. But the way that I did it without the vocabulary was just, Basically, it was uh, the, the couple of times I've been turned down for surgery on the reflection of like, okay, well, that's not going to, I'm not going to get a fix. Like, well, I'm also not going to like let this ruin my life. So you just kind of just decide to not let it. And then you stop obsessing about it and just, you know, try and take it easy, but don't let it ruin your life. But it is, I don't know. Yeah, it's awkward. So I don't know. But anyway, yeah, I'm doing fine. You're going to be doing fine in a week and that's super awesome. So rock on yeah everybody kind of has a different set level of motivation of things that distract you i recently um had some kind of stomach flu like a gastroenteritis thing going on for like a week and a half and i had to miss a bunch of days of work (laughs) i was just like complaining the whole time i was like oh this sucks like I hate being non-functional. I hate being useless. I was like, kept trying to, I like went back to work one day and I was just slowly dragging myself like through the office. And somebody's like, I don't, should you be back at work? <laughs> like, no, it's great. I'm fine. <laughs> and then like an hour later, I'm not fine. I'm going to go back home. <laughs> but I had to like talk to my boss and he had to show me the handbook. That's like, Hey, we work with cancer patients and they're immunosuppressed. So if you have these symptoms in this handbook right here, then yeah. you should leave. And I looked at it and I was like, yeah but definitely like i don't know i have uh two partners that have various like stomach issues just chronically and i was kind of just with both of them like how do you guys live like this like it's i do have a lot more respect for anybody that can just have like chronic diarrhea you know like because that's just so draining and it it sounds hilarious and so like you have to deal with it and then it's just like wow i feel terrible (laughs) all the time the worst part like sorry for the tmi but no it's whatever also there was a joke in there 
like you said, chronic diarrhea is draining. <laughs> oh, sorry. That's good. Yeah, levity. Um, and like when it that's comes a good to coping mechanism, though. Yeah, exactly. You got to make light of everything. Like my, my general thing when it comes to like being injured or sick is like anything that affects basically like your neck, head, or core like sucks because you can't like you can sometimes like lay in a better position to make your like stomach hurt a little less or whatever. Mm, But if you've got like a really sore throat or a migraine, it's just like, that's just there. But if you have a broken foot, you just take it easy on it and it'll get better. I I don't know. I've, I I would rather have a broken wrist than, I mean, I guess I'd rather have a day of a broken wrist than a day of a migraine any day of the week. Mm. Cause you can just like be careful with an arm, but you can't be careful with your (laughs) fucking brain. (laughs) I was telling people I'd rather have physical pain than like nausea and stomach things. I'm serious about that. Like, I just can't stand that. Uh, yeah. We were talking about B-Minder earlier, and Stephen, you were talking about, um, what was it? Uh, well, Influence. you were saying uh, like public commitment, I guess. Yeah, commitment and consistency. I think that was chapter two or three of uh, Shildini's mm. book. And that reminds me, is B-Minder like stick? Where you, like, well, that's what I was just going to say. I think, I think stick is um, where you, I'm not exactly sure. I think you say that you're going to do something publicly and people hold you to it. And yeah. then B-Minder is where you hold yourself to something, but you pledge a certain amount of money and that you have to pay back if you don't like make your milestones. I think the other stick yeah. with stick, maybe that's why there's two Ks, was that it wasn't necessarily public. You'd have like a... Um, or you had a... Um, a, a, a person. Like an a contract a, buddy. An account, yeah, exactly. An accountability buddy. Um, yeah. Who you would say, all right, well, I've put up 50 bucks that will go to... Uh, Trump's 2020 campaign if I don't quit smoking or if I have a cigarette in the next three months and then your roommate or your friend, whoever you can count on to enforce that will, you know, make sure and you'll, you know, you can, you, there's some self-honesty involved too, but mm-hmm. if they watch you smoke, then boom, you've given money to a charity that you hate. I think that's the other motivator behind stick was oh, that yeah. uh, you, you put it up for a charity that you really don't want to have your money. Yeah. The, the, the thing about Minder is it's very regimented and especially tailored toward like incremental goals. So, yeah. uh, you know, n- n- well, it was more of a kind of you want to do more of this or less of that. Right. Yeah. Like, I remember I was trying to do like 100 words a day for writing. Exactly. And then you uh, they had the what was it? The yellow brick road that you have to stay on. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they then give you a little bit of leeway, give you a little I... bit of leeway and let you kind of like reset the leeway and, and play with that. Yeah. But but yeah, I mean, the thing is, I would just I would just always just just fun, like eventually get to a day where i'm just like i don't have the spoons to do mm-hmm. this and i guess i lose i lose the game and then i'm and then you're de- demoralized <laughs> and you don't want to you don't want to start over because huh. now you had to pay money and you're pissed off and yeah i actually was talking to the co-founder of bminder when i was at cfar um and i think that they've been developing it more too like they're, they're aware of these kinds of issues and, and they use it themselves I was really hoping to have him on. There's, I met Daniel, and um, I know he and his, I think his wife or uh, partner, uh, created Beaminder. That would be really neat to have them on. Mm-hmm. Totally, they, agree. we talked about that. So hoping that that might happen soon. But yeah, that's cool. So where does the money go if you um, don't succeed at your goal in Beaminder? You said you lost two hundred bucks. Do you get it? Does it go like to their company? Do they donate it to charity? It or? goes to Beaminder. Yeah, nice. yeah that, that, that's the only it. way they make money. It's free to use unless you fuck up. Yeah, <laughs> right on. <laughs> Which. Uh, they were talking about kind of incentives. like, yeah, well, they're like, yeah, we're aware that like our business plan is kind of 
<laughs> you don't want to pay the money, but they, they were saying that they try to make it like as gentle as possible. So it's like any time that you give them money, like you don't feel like you've been cheated out of that money. You're like, yeah, that's what I signed up for. <laughs> yeah, as long as you're signing up for it, I think it sounds great. Yeah, they give you a lot of like warning emails. Like my my inbox has like a thousand like you are in imminent <laughs> danger of derailing from your goal emails uh, because I would always go right up to the line. Yeah. Did you take the Slate Star Codex survey? Not yet. Oh, okay. I did. Has it run out yet? I, I don't no, no, it's still open. No. I was just curious because you, you said a million emails, and one of the questions in it is how many unread emails are in your inbox right now? Really, like 2,000. Or, really? Oh, my God. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, don't, I, don't, I, I don't, yeah, I don't care at all. Okay. Yeah, um, see, I put zero for that, even though, like, I read ones that come into the Bayesian Conspiracy account, then I mark them unread mm-hmm. so that I remember to, like, make a note mm-hmm. about them or put them in the show notes so yeah. I didn't count those. Okay. Mm-hmm. But if I have an email, like, I, if, if there, it's to me, the little red circle is an action item. And so if I, like, I deliberately left the, my statement for my HOA due uh, mm-hmm. payment un, unread until today when I paid it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, that's that's my thing. I, I don't know how you look at that 2,000 and then, like... If one more comes in, I guess so. Don't email you if you want to get in touch with you. <laughs> if if there's something important, then I will put it into my actual deal with this shit system. Otherwise, it goes away into the memory hole forever. Yeah, I have heard that uh, the e- shorter emails are much more likely to get responses. Mm-hmm. Like not even to to uh, friends or businesses or anything. Just in general, the shorter an email is, the higher the likelihood of a response. So mm-hmm. I've, I've gotten better at shortening them down. When I forwarded you that email, <laughs> I was like, oh man, it has that whole digression at the beginning. If I'd have known this back then, I would not have done that. <laughs> yeah, but the I got email a I sent anyway. ended up being really short. I still haven't heard back, but... <laughs> cool. I can confirm that the ones that come into the podcast email, if they're really long, I will... I'll often put off reading them because it's like I don't have ten minutes, mm-hmm. and then I'll read them, and then I'll be like, "Thanks, I don't have time to reply everything because I usually don't." Like I, <laughs> it, and I, I do appreciate everything that goes into it. Um, all of the, you know, it, that's the whole point. They they spend a long time writing it and thinking about what the, what to put into it. Yeah. But I don't have that much time to put into replying to it. So it's like this was awesome. Thank you. Is all I can really say. But if it's a quick one off question, I can I can answer it. Um, this is everybody's reminder that if you read Slate Star Codex, go take the survey if you haven't yet. Yeah. So it's very handy. So speaking of Slate Star Codex and synthesizing the last several minutes of conversation mm-hmm. into that, there was this post on r slash Slate Star Codex that was just like, how does how does Scott Alexander do it? How does he find the time? And and yes, he's extremely prolific and extremely impressive and so forth. But but I'm like my thought was like I think this is just fun for him. He's playing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like I was thinking, like y'all were talking about chronic pain. Apparently, everyone here is a famous chronic pain sufferer. Um, <laughs> ah, and I'm like, <laughs> but, but, like I, I have only been for the past few months. Yeah. Well, well, like so. So I was thinking, like most of my like less wrong posts, for example, get written when I'm having a horrible migraine or something. Like like most of my intellectual diversion tasks are when that's kind of all I can do. Oh. But I'd rather not. And like I don't have the whatever willpower is, I don't have the willpower to do something that I should be doing. And so I'll, I'll do something like a less wrong post, for example, or, or, or just comments like, like just, and so I'm like, think if you're lucky enough that it's the fascination lottery concept, which is another Slate Star Codex thing. But like, if you're lucky enough that, you know, the playing guitar is just fun for you, even if you're noodling around pointlessly on it, mm-hmm. um, no matter what, or, or even if practicing scales is fun for you, then you're going to be really good at guitar. You lucked out. Um, uh, if writing 20,000 word blog posts, um, about complicated 
top topics is your thing, you're gonna you're gonna get good for you, you know. It's actually really surprising how much time there is in a day uh, when you aren't sweater bros. <laughs> what up? Uh, it's surprising how much time there is in a day when you aren't um, distracted by other things. Mm-hmm. Like uh, right now, I'm playing World of Warcraft and I'm really enjoying it because I'm playing the Guild Leader game, and that's just a whole different game from the actual game itself. But uh, before I was playing this, I basically didn't play video games much anymore maybe a couple hours a week i didn't really watch tv anymore i just wasn't interested in most things that are on and so you i had all this time in the day for podcasts or writing or cleaning my house you know it was it's amazing when you don't have those little distractions just how much time there is to do things mm-hmm. and i i get the feeling scott's probably also that kind of person where like you know he could he could read a nonfiction book for fun and then write about it for fun. And that's his evening because, you know, like you said, the fascination lottery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do I get a good fascination? Is there a trick for that? Because I spend all my, like, unconstructive time doing nothing productive. I should be reading books that I find interesting. Um, instead, I'm playing Clash of Clans and browsing Reddit. Like, I don't know. Eventually, I mean, um... you simple on something. Uh it's or you probably a, already have things. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, I my fascination was getting drunk up until I was like thirty-one or thirty-two. So maybe I should try that. <laughs> you have like seeds <laughs> of things. I think. Uh, yeah, that's fine. I have found this is something that made me really relieved that when there were things that I wanted to do and wanted to work on, I guess first of all, there's something that makes you interested in them. Like uh, I ended up with fascination lottery for drugs, and that was. I actually kind of got back into Less Wrong after I read a little bit of HPMOR and then kind of fell out of it a bit, like, through Gwern. You should probably just... Uh, the first place people's minds go when you say you got really interested in drugs is probably not where you are thinking of. Well, actually, nootropics specifically, or right. uh, supplements, and no, just, like, the no. pharmacodynamics and so forth. But, like, maybe, I mean... Maybe the average patient conspiracy listener got where you're coming from, but I hear that, and I'm like, no, oh, okay, you, you got really into cocaine for a few I years. I expect our listeners to know what I mean by that. But, like, uh, no, I'm working on a CAR-T now, which is chimeric antigen receptor T-cells for uh, blood cancers. And... Oh. But the thing is that, like... Anything that led up to that, it was kind of this, like, I don't know, like, weird little fascination thing of, like, reading about pharmacodynamics on Wikipedia, and it eventually became a career. But um, that's how all of my careers started. It was this little nugget of, like, this thing's kind of cool, and then just digging deeper and deeper into it. As long as you approach it, I think, incrementally, and you don't exhaust yourself on it, you don't force yourself into it very much. I was just, like, I don't know what you call it, uh, praising and... Uh, admiring what you like you and phoenix are like hobbyist neurochemists <laughs> and now it's like a career for you but it's like I, well, i'm a hobbyist too though i mean my, my career is very specialized yeah but like i'm like we were we were talking about the interactions of like modafinil and other things and i'm like oh you know what i bet not only can just answer that but they can tell you like neurochemically and biologically what's going on with it and that's awesome yeah i mean and i just love that uh mm. i find it really cool and it comes from, I guess, like, there's something I want to use that for. The reason I really liked reading Gwern and looking at all of his end-of-one experiments was that science just seems so intimidating, and here was this guy who was doing end-of-one experiments, and it made complete sense if you could kind of break it down into, okay, so he's taking magnesium and something that looks like magnesium every day and making a journal about it and then just throwing that into a spreadsheet and over time seeing whether or not it improved these different mental tasks that he was doing like a reaction speed test and uh, a memorization test and so forth and so on 
that's like oh okay like i could do that Mm -hmm. um i feel like a disproportionate number of my and your podcast listeners are graduate students um so i just wanted to kind of follow up on that story with my story of of like me and uh, my friend Michael are like the only two people who I know who had a good time in graduate school. <laughs> Everyone else seems to just, it just seems to be the most miserable time of their life. And I think for both of us, it was actually that we we did kind of flounder for a while until we actually found a project that we just thought was intrinsically fascinated and we be, became kind of obsessed with figuring it out. And then it was like our thing. And similarly to how, you know, neuropharmacology is your thing and it just it's it you you got into it because you're interested in it and it's like a self-powering wheel like that's if you if you can't find something like that in graduate school it's going to be the most miserable grind of your life because someone's basically saying solve this really difficult problem that you have no real interest in and and you've never done this before by the way and we're not going to help you good luck but if if you're if you're really fascinated you want to solve it it becomes your thing and you you will quickly know more about it than anyone else around you. And that's because that's, it's not much of, it's not much of an ask, right? Like if think about any time you've been into, even if it was Pokemon when you were eight years old, like, like you probably knew more about Pokemon than 99.9% of people, right? It's very easy to, to, to be an expert in something if you really think it's awesome. I was once at the point where I had a friend call me on the, on like my parents' landline because we were kids and they'd asked me, like, what was the code to do this in one of her <laughs> video game? And off the top of my head, I was able to give them, like, the, you know, press start and press in these 16 keys. Yeah. And then you're good to go. I wish I could have something, like, real in my adult life. <laughs> well, <laughs> but you totally could because you could do it with Pokemon. That's what I'm saying is... is you... But I don't have the drive anymore to do stuff. But if you find the right <laughs> thing, then I, then I think the drive would appear. All right. And I don't know, like, I, and, like, you kind of asked earlier, like, how do you fabricate the drive? I don't know. I'm sort of trying to... Like like the Iron Man suit and stuff like that. I'm sort of trying to trick my kids and being fascinated with engineering and physics and and science in general. I mean, yeah. you should show them uh, Randall Monroe's What If, which I'm sure you're aware of if you haven't read it. I um, haven't read it, but yeah. Oh, I, I have think... the Thing Explainer, which might be better for kids because oh. it's a big picture book. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say What If is probably too dense for little kids. Yeah, but when they get older, as long as like the physics, physics and engineering, it gives physics and engineering answers to absurd hypothetical questions like it, how he, much electricity could yoda generate yeah what's what's yoda's <laughs> force output in joules yeah. um can you make a uh hoverboard out of uh ak-47s oh yeah um yeah it's fantastic that and fun he, one what would happen when you threw a uh if you pitched a base, yes. bas- baseball at the speed of light the relative the relativistic baseball pitch yeah. yeah yeah i have like a bunch of basic conspiracy topics that i wanted to propose and i just keep forgetting that i've got them in a text document but like one thing that I've been getting into is trying to find children's books written by smart people um, because I was reading David Allen's GTD for teens and I just happened to like find it at the library, started paging through it, laughing a little bit and then like looking at it and being like, wait a minute, <laughs> <laughs> like smart people writing books for children. Like it's kind of the idea of the explain it like I'm five or what, however old it was. I forget. That. Yeah, it's yeah. five. It is five. Um taking a complex idea and then breaking it down into simple metaphors drawings and like the idea is smart people know that children aren't stupid they just lack the life experience uh but they're as smart as adults so it's like if i can take this idea that maybe you lack all the 
background knowledge that I and that I'm assuming adults have and break it down, then I can explain it to you. And the thing is that like people like David Allen or whatever expert is trying to explain whatever their expert topic is, they're generally always making a little bit of uh, the, what do they call it? The inferential distance bias mm-hmm. where they're assuming that kind of, okay, like average person knows about this much and average person is some kind of like avatar of you because you know you the best. Yeah. <laughs> so like that you're always going to jump a little bit ahead. They should really do like the Feynman approach, which I don't think he ever, at least he didn't say he did in his books, but I like the quote that you don't really understand something unless you can explain it to your grandmother. Mm-hmm. And that's what anyone who writes a book for kids should do is like just dry run it past like a parent or a grandparent or a child oh, before yeah. you publish it. Well, I mean, you're a programmer, so you probably know about rubber ducking, right? Yeah. Um, or if people, listeners don't know about that, it's where a programmer, like, I don't know, the, the, the I guess the myth behind it is a programmer's trying to... uh get an answer from their like fellow programmer about something that they're confused about and in the process of explaining what their problem is they were like wait (laughs) i just i just figured it out and then they were like i could also just explain this to a rubber duck (laughs) it doesn't have to be a real person there because like in the process of you like pretending to explain it to someone who's sitting there which could just be a rubber duck you might actually just like figure it out yourself yeah the the parable was like an instructor at a college would say, yes, you can come in and ask me questions during my office hours, but first you have to tell your question and your problem to the duck that's sitting on the table outside <laughs> and then, then knock if, if you don't know by then. And I have two ducks on my desk at home and one on my desk at work and I never remember to actually talk to them. Um, but the the trick is like, you're stu- you're, you're, something's not working and you're like, okay, why isn't this working? And at that point, you're, your brain hits a wall for many people. So what you try to do is train yourself to say, okay, let me explain what I'm doing to this. My little, it looks like a Grateful Dead, it, the little duck I have on my desk at work. Um, it looks like a Grateful <laughs> Dead bear, but like the way it's painted. And be like, okay, well here, I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And then, oh, I'm not doing what I think I'm doing. That's why that's not working. And that's that's usually the trick. So mm-hmm. um, yeah. Makes sense. Back when I was more active with my blog, I would often find that by the time I was done with the blog post, I had to delete the blog post because my position had changed entirely. <laughs> that sounds like a fun thing just to leave up. Yeah, yeah maybe. You, you, you hit publish, or I guess you, you add like a, a postscript that says... <laughs> to be continued. Yeah, or like, I've changed my All mind this on this. All of this is wrong. While, yeah, <laughs> while writing this, I realized I've changed my mind. See, you know, check next week's post. Yeah. 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 Speaking of blogging and the 10 years thing and so on, yeah. you know, Scott Alexander did that 10-year retrospective. That That's one nice thing about having like... A shitload of internet comments and so forth is that you can look back over it and be like that's how i used to think about things and mm. and and i don't know if i can necessarily track my progress on intellectual topics the way scott alexander can but it's it, it's a fun exercise to do I, I do it occasionally just like look back through old comments yeah so since we were supposed to be talking about like the past 10 years are there any major changes in your your thinking over the last 10 years or your life in general, I guess. I mean, I, I, I want one of us to say, no, I was right about everything 10 yeah. years ago. Oh, yeah. Not me. Yeah. No, no <laughs> nothing's changed. Uh, I mean, I, I just looked up my first less wrong post was apparently in 2011, Ooh. which is almost 10 years ago. So prior to that, I didn't know about any of this stuff. And I, and I think like I, I definitely use a lot of the kind of less wrong inspired thinking and everything that I do practically. So um, to the point where it's hard for me to even remember that it used to be different. Um, yeah, I mean, it's that's that's a really interesting question, and and 
I, I kind of want to go back and like specifically think about that question. It's not something that I can just ad lib. Yeah. I don't think, but but yeah, I mean, if any of you have any ideas of like specific major shifts you've had, because ten years is a long time. I'm sure there's a lot of shifts in, in a ten year period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we should do this on a yearly basis. Ten is too much because I mean, ten for me, I was twenty which I think puts me the youngest in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's see, I would have been finishing my community college degree and then I took six months or a year off or wait. Yeah. About a year. And then got my undergraduate degree, met my wife uh, while I was at CSU and oh, oh, but cute. This is the cute story. We met in elementary school, um, <laughs> but we, we reconnected when I was in college and then, yeah, at some point, in fact, I remember this oh, as much as I remember anything. I think part of why my autobiographical memory is so bad is I remember reading Elizabeth Loftus's work about uh, how easy it is to fabricate memories mm-hmm. and not just implant them in other people, but more or less recreate your own from scratch. And yeah, well, so, you like, can't not do that. Right. That's, that's how that, memories form. Yeah, exactly. So that's just how it works. That realization made me just like kind of put every memory I had into like the this is probably bullshit bucket in my brain that eventually gets garbage collected. And then... So you just stopped forming memories entirely? I think so. And I'm kind of worried about that actually because this uh, you know, my, my ability to pin things down within a year or two is only like easier now because I can usually reference it off of somebody else. Um, like I'm going to go see a comedian tomorrow, Beth Stelling. She's uh, really funny. And I knew that I saw her at some point in the last three or four years. But Rachel has uh, an app on her phone that like this day in your history, your social media history. Uh-huh. And it was like three days ago. She's like, oh, we saw her two years ago, three days ago. Um, so it was two years ago, apparently. If you had okay. asked me how many years ago it was, I would have guessed one to three. Um, I'm terrible with the passage of time. Yeah. That's- so I recently asked my mom, like, how do you always know, like, what ye- what what month of what year something fell on, even if it was eight years ago? And, like, she just – it's funny because I must have never asked the question to her right out like that because I've always been amazed by her kind of autobiographical memory. And she's like, oh, I just have, like – and she, like, waves her hand kind of over her over her head. There's, like, a tape that I see with all the dates li- li- uh, 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 <laughs> laid out on it with the events kind of arranged in order. And I was like – what <laughs> you never mentioned this i don't have a wow. tape that's no, pure fucking magic that's awesome, that's awesome. dude does the... she have the perfect autobiographical it, memory no it's not it's not supernatural it's just like i'm this just continually like, like um what is the thing where people have the ability to like see numbers as colors or synesthesia yeah that it, it, almost sounds like that it, it does seem like it yeah i mean it's it, it's it's to the extent that it's impressive to me partially because i feel like i can I don't. I don't remember numbers at all. Like, which is not a useful thing. I, I mean, like as an, as engineer, an engineer. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Um, but um, uh, yeah, I thought that was pretty funny because I was. I I wish I was still moving every year because that was a very handy metric for knowing how long ago something happened. I would count back, you know, the number of times I've moved since that happened. Mm-hmm. But haven't haven't moved regularly like that in a good five six years now. Mm-hmm. Why were you moving every year? Because I like to move every year. Oh. I just like to change where I am. I feel that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's that's easily doable when you're uh, renting, much harder when you're buying. Yeah. I mean, I switched from buying to renting, and yes, it's, uh, I don't know, it was, it was a really positive life change for me. Probably, like, there's different reasons for why different people might do both. Mm-hmm. But uh, more on topic, the one thing I keep thinking about is when people are talking about like how do you have a good memory of what happened or what you were thinking at that time i've kept a journal since i was about 
eight or nine years old, like pretty regularly. And I have all of them. Wow. So on one hand, uh, it's like, oh, I, I do. I can actually go back and look at what I was thinking or what I was doing in, you know, middle school or like, you know, when I was 10 or 13 or 18. On the other hand, um, it's all written with pencil mm-hmm. on notebooks. And uh, I've got all of these stored in my closet right now. Uh, I have this project plan where at some point I would just want to rip all the binding out and mass scan these. So I at least have a digital version of them because like when I had the house fire, it was luckily my filing cabinet that I had all these journals in was spared. It was not just my journals, but all my drawings. Uh, but like, I was just like, man, it was really close to just having all my memories destroyed. But yeah. I was going to, I was grinning a little bit cause I was thinking the obvious way to store these forever for posterity is to record them all to tape because <laughs> we've all listened to the magnus archives and oh, like yeah. oh you obviously just need to commit these to a, to a tape recorder no, I, mean, I i forget where i read this there was probably some rat fic or i don't know but like I, I really love the idea of being able to take all of these writings that i have and then like if if slash when in the transhumanist future we get the ability to like add memory to our brains I want to just have this like be stored there and I can be just pull it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, the text would have to be parsable or it would have to be in some form that's <laughs> beyond text in terms of like readability, legibility. I don't know. But uh, I really love that idea. Of, I'd like to be able to take all these memories that have been stored externally and then make them internal again. I guess it depends on what you wrote down. Um, I mentioned because I you're, the, the condition where people have perfect auto near perfect autobiographical memory is real. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's usually it comes with like heavy deficiencies in other areas though. Yeah, like well they 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 can read a book you know a, a textbook like the rest of us and they don't retain all of that, um, which is a drag because that's also I don't know how it works in your brain but that's also autobiographical right. Like, you remember reading the book. Mm-hmm. You, you presumably remember what it says. If you remember what you had for breakfast at 7.43 a.m. on January 11th, 2010, um, there's, why wouldn't you remember what was on page 333 of your college biology textbook, right? Different uh, ways the brain stores different kinds of memories. Yeah, but I guess... The, the folders that I guess are labeled autobiographical or a bit <laughs> ar- like arbitrary. That, well, that's the point, yeah. So different memories are stored different ways. You remember but, what TV show you watch, but you don't remember, like, yeah, I guess... Uh, the pages of that book were probably stored somewhere else. I have this stupid thing when it comes to reading that like, especially with fiction books, I could tell you back, you know, five years later, oh yeah, it was on the right hand page of the hardcover copy that I had or something. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I can't do that with useful information. Do people with that perfect autobiographical memory not change as much in their lives? Because I've changed radically in my life. Uh, My impression is that usually um, people on the autism spectrum and they tend to kind of live these very regimented lives hmm. the only other thing i was going to say that i knew about them is that it tends not to be a happy thing for them mm-hmm. oh yeah you, you remember every schoolyard diss someone threw your way you know 30 years ago yeah i think but then couldn't you also remember every time you had great sex or something i, think I guess you, i think you don't like maybe maybe this is just a, a a reflection on the fact that more bad things happen to you than <laughs> good things yeah but maybe that depends on the person i think it's not even bad i think you have so many memories of mundane things and they're so intrusive hmm. that it's very hard to actually process things in real time because you're getting inundated by like very specific memories of very similar things every time you go to poop you remember every time you ever pooped <laughs> <laughs> that does sound super boring (laughs) yeah i think i remember one instance where it was like it was really clear it was about this one particular case where the woman was clearly just like ruminating on all these details like 
you know, she remembered that she had her coffee at 9.30 because, like, at the end of the day, she would be, like, thinking about the fact that she had had her coffee at 9.30, which, like, I... It's the end of the day, and I don't remember what time I <laughs> yeah. did anything today. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't ruminate that way. But if you do ruminate that way, then at least you have a chance of remembering it, I guess. So much of the thing that's important about thinking in memory is the selective forgetting process, mm-hmm. and nothing reminds me of that more than like I've been getting back into my meditation practice, and so like today I just did twenty minutes of mindfulness meditation. And when you sit there and you try to just be really conscious of everything your body's doing, everything you're feeling, and everything you're thinking, I have this meta process of labeling where I go, ah, feeling. Uh, I'm feeling a tension in my lower back muscles, and that feels unpleasant. Thinking. I'm thinking a plan about what I'm going to do after I'm finished meditating. I'm going to go put some tea on, and that feels neutral. And... You do that for 20 minutes and it's just like, yeah, this would be like, this is a really interesting thing to do daily. It really helps you get an idea of how your brain works, what kinds of things it's doing and gives you more ability to focus on whatever. But if you had to live like that all the time, then that would be all you were doing. Mm -hmm. So much of like what we're doing is our body going into autopilot or uh, us like thinking back about memories. We're thinking about these like bright points of memory that we have crystallized as this is important. This is important. We're not thinking about that coffee we had. Yeah, I basically stopped meditating after after <laughs> kind of like doing it fairly intensely for a few stretches because I I don't mind being an autopilot. Like <laughs> if if my life were rife with suffering, then I might want some different some like distance from that. Mm. And I feel like that's part of the motivation for why I was meditating back then because I want a distance from the headaches. But now I'm just like things are good. I'm fine being swept up in samsara. I don't I don't need to be aware of my own. Uh, you know, whatever, whatever it is that I am. Uh, I don't know. I, I think meditation is fascinating, though. Um, I like oh, yeah. to talk about it. I did vaguely, like, regimented meditation for a few months, like 10, 15 minutes a day. Um, but then I, I've, I've been doing, like, not exactly, like, pop quizzes, because it kind of just comes up randomly. And part of it is through, like, if you constantly have whatever muscle tension or something, one way to realize, how, one way to, like, manage it is to notice that as a problem before it's a problem. And so you're like, oh, I'm flexing my shoulders. Let me yeah. fix that before it starts hurting. Mm-hmm. So like kind of just like an auto reminder in your head to like just check in with your body and see how things are going. Um, but one thing that's kind of fun to do is if you, it, this is like, you have to like, I, well, it, I have to just turn this on and then I get bored of it after a few seconds or I forget. But just like I watch the narrative train in my head go through and, you know, like I'll, I'll go walk to my car and that's usually like a, 10 second walk but i'll leave my I'll, I'll watch my thoughts come in as they're doing it and it's just it's it would be hilarious to like put this to 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 the you know, like to write this down or to record my thoughts as they're happening because it's just like i'm saying things to myself like oh i forgot to uh check or where are my car keys oh there they are and like why am i asking myself these questions <laughs> out loud in my head yeah. um you know, oh look, there's you know, there's the the neighbor's cat in the window. Oh, I bet it's looks so soft, and it's just like <laughs> if I was verbalizing all these thoughts, that sounded insane. And I think that's just kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's two concepts of the uh, arising and the passing away, uh, and then also like one of the ideas of meditation is the idea of the no self. So what you're supposed to do is when you hear yourself saying something, then you go, "Who said that?" And then you're like, "And then who said that?" And now he said that. Damn it. <laughs> and eventually you follow it all the way back and you realize that like, yeah, there's, oh, uh, nobody. Yeah. <laughs> speaking, speaking of 
patterns noticing themselves. Uh, you all saw the post on Slate Star Codex about the uh, GPT-2 playing chess. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That was awesome. Then yeah. I got to share the original Slate Star Codex post about GPT-2 with all my coworkers. Mm-hmm. We somehow were out of the loop on all this, which mm-hmm. I thought was interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love it. I think it's really interesting. For uh, anyone who hasn't seen it yet and the listeners, uh, Scott and a few other people put together. I think Scott just played it. Someone else put it together. Uh, using GPT-2, uh, the it's the text predictor program. We did an episode on it earlier where you put in a line of text and it like spits out a paragraph or two of, you know, something that could come from that. It's remarkably interesting. Uh, Got to talk about that cool dungeon thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, they, they did, used it with uh, chess moves because every chess move can be uh, encoded as a combination of a few characters and letters that tell you what piece to move and where to move it. And uh, it could play chess not well, but passably. It, it well played well an amateur. for a bit, and then like it kind of lost interest after a while, <laughs> okay. which I, I find really funny. Yeah, I think it was literally like it could play well for twelve moves, and then like that was the length of its like memory buffer. But like <laughs> that's attention span. But it doesn't yeah. actually have a memory buffer yeah. or an attention span. It, like the really yeah. fascinating thing was Scott pointed well, out. This has this is literally just a text predictor. It has no concept of chess or mm. the rules of chess. Or that there is a physical space or pawns and pieces. But then that brings up, but, but we're not playing chess either. Like, we're also kind of just a predictor. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, like I mean, an experience yeah. predictor. That, I it, think yeah. that was his point, that yeah. just a random, you know, a, a pattern recognizer and predictor could do remarkably mm. uh, robust and powerful things. And, you know, eventually you get powerful enough, maybe this pattern predictor can recognize patterns that it itself is doing and then we become self-conscious oh my god it does make me wonder how many like nodules kind of like gpt2 you'd have to stick together in order to get a fully sentient being because you do get these like really bizarre emergent things out of very simple processes like that it's hard to tell how much of sentience is the result of these very complex like interchanging uh (laughs) nodules i don't know i keep saying the word nodules that's a weird word but like yeah, how, like, what if it's just, like, three GPT-2s stuck together? <laughs> yeah. Or what if it's not, you know, and it's just this weird coincidence? That's a good tie-in to the AI Dungeon app that you introduced us, introduced us to at the meetup. Yeah, uh, I guess I'll talk about it for a second. Uh, first of all, I recommend it. Just get the AI Dungeon app, or you can just go to the website. I think it's just AIDungeon.com. <laughs> and it's basically somebody sort of made their own tailor-made, uh, I guess the, the word is fine-tuned, GPT-2 model where... Um, you basically give it like a story prompt of like you're uh, you're, you're you're Bob the rugged survivor. It's the post zombie apocalypse, and you're in your bunker, and then it gives you a little prompt, and then and then you basically treat it like one of those old text like text based adventures, text based adventure games where you 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 type like look around or you know open the door or whatever. The thing is, you can type in whatever you want, and because it's GPT two, it'll just be like basically it's constantly running the algorithm of. All right, what what would happen? Like, like, what would the text say after this? Okay, and then mm-hmm. a walking dolphin comes in the door and says, "I know your mother." Yeah. And JPTG is like, "All right," and then next, yeah, <laughs> then and, your and, mother walks in and just like Bob the dolphin. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really it's really creepy and incredible and awesome. Like, what were we doing? We had like a velociraptor come in, and then there was a lightsaber, and like, and of course, like it knows that if you hit something with a lightsaber, it burns them. Like it. it it, it, oh yeah it was really neat because at one point uh 
I think we met a skeleton friend of the Velociraptor, uh-huh. and that's when they it coined the term the Vos- Velociraptor guard. Yeah. And we were like, it made up a word! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the best thing about this was I like went outside to talk to somebody at our restaurant meetup, and I came inside, and people were like, and now they're like sexually caressing the Velociraptor. And I was like, what are you guys playing over there? <laughs> Yeah, I was, I was, I think we were playing out on my phone and I'd put in like, all right, attack the Velociraptor, the lightsaber. And then it's like, all right, you, you hit it. And I was like, now eat its heart. And then it's like, uh, or like it says something about the heart coming out of it when you killed it. And I was like, all right, now eat the heart. And then you put in after I left, like put the heart, like save the Velociraptor. And it says you put the heart back in, <laughs> even after eating a piece of it. <laughs> Like it, it makes mistakes, right? And this is the same as it's the same as GPT two always was, where like it'll make these mistakes. But the stuff that it does know, like I I I wrote a Reddit comment about this. I was like, I don't think it's a language model. I think it's a concept model. It just doesn't mm-hmm. quite get the concepts right. I think it's, I don't think it's sentient. I don't think it's super intelligent. But I <laughs> I think people aren't giving it enough credit. Is what I think. I think it's pretty impressive. I want to read how it primes the because you can pick the setting or you can do a custom one. Mm-hmm. And I did the, uh, what, apocalyptic mm-hmm. wasteland or something. And it used words like super mutant, which I don't know if that's from, nice. if that's just from Fallout, but that's where I associate it with. And it described it as these big, mean talking things. And I'm like, okay, so super mutants are the ones from Fallout. I wonder, so I want to look up on the website where, where like, what yeah, it feeds it for the prompts. You see what training material is. But you talked yeah. about how you put it, you were basically writing like a worm uh worm verse thing and yeah. you said go into your breaker state and it's like art and like it doesn't know what breaker state means well i think what it's i think it has read just a crap ton of the internet so i think it's read a lot of worm fan fiction if not worm itself that's so cool and so like yeah you, you like you don't tell it what a breaker is you just say go into your breaker state and it's like your body disappears into a haze of electrical energy and, and it's like yeah exactly yeah so do you think the number of words of worm itself is greater than the number of words in like worm fan fiction or <laughs> I, I feel like at this point there's more worm fan fiction just because there's there's a lot of fan a fiction. huge amount yeah, yeah. just in um, general many much of it apparently written by people who haven't read worm really yes oh yeah that's a thing yeah, yeah a like thing. yeah I found that really funny for a while that something will get popular, people will draw lots of fan art out of it. People will see the fan art and kind of like or hear about it from their friends and then just be like, Oh, I know what that is and then start drawing more of it or writing stuff based off of it without having read it. Yeah. <laughs> or only reading parts of it. Okay. I tried to do one because you mentioned that you had set up where you your prompt was like, I'm an AI in a machine trying to convince my programmer to let me out. I tried that for ten minutes and it, it just it didn't get what i was trying to do mm-hmm. um but that you're you tell me a little bit what you did there because i think we didn't get the long version at the meetup well yeah I, did. I was just trying to play around with this concept of getting it to do stuff that had nothing to do with the multi-user dungeon type experience i was just like um in, in one case i was like uh you are interviewer interviewing matt freeman um and then i like wrote some details about who matt freeman was <laughs> and then i basically was the interviewer and then the AI was Matt Freeman, and they're just like <laughs> that's uh, just to be trippy and weird. And then I did one where I was like, "You were an AI researcher talking to your AI that you've that you've built, and and uh, you built it to be super intelligent to can solve any problem. You just need to ask it a question, and it'll tell you the solution." And then I started asking it questions, and what was funny is it would like, um, it would like cleverly evade answering the question. Like it would be like. <laughs> Well, we need to define better what you mean by that first. And I'd be like, "No, fuck you! You're, you're gonna, you're gonna tell me." Um, 
and then there was one where I was like talking to my physicist colleague who had invented cold fusion. So I basically got uh, GPT two to tell me how to make cold fusion. <laughs> Apparently, the key is a as a platinum catalyst with a with a gold plating around it. Just FYI. Cool. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> the second that starts, if someone ever gets like a, an experimental result, they can go out and check, and it's right. Uh-huh. I, I'm hoping that that explodes on the internet, and everyone everyone hears about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. I me mean, too. presumably, you could feed it all of the scientific literature on everything. You know. I think, and it could synthesize some new information. Like, I think we're going in that direction. You know, like, like it make in the way that it makes kind of it gets a lot of things weirdly right, and then it makes a lot of kind of obvious mistakes. I think it's going to get better at that kind of thing, and then you start pointing at like a scientific, you know, at SciHub or whatever, read every scientific paper. It's going to get to the point where it can just be like, oh, it, I, I. I know everything and I can cross correlate across these different domains and it'll, it'll be able to find out things that, that you can sort of use it as Google now, right? Right. Like you can sort of be like, think of a topic you don't know anything about and then sort of ask it about that. And it'll know something about it. Right. Cause it's read probably a hundred thousand words on that topic. That's, that's amazing already. <laughs> yeah. Right. And it's not even made for that. Yeah. But you can't entirely trust it to get it right. True, true. But we're but we're gonna get there though. This is, this, I, I'm I feel confident anyway. Cool. You have a little mini oracle. Yeah. Basically. Well, do we want to talk about what has happened in the in the rationalist world over the past ten years? I can start really quick with a very simple one, which is I mentioned sometime. Oh, this that that was my long tangent on. Um, memories and stuff because i remember specifically assuming this memory is accurate even what stoplight i was at when i was listening to rationally speaking this part of the memory must be true because that's where i heard (laughs) of at the end of the podcast they would do the rationally speaking pick where Mm. they pick uh whatever book video game or tv show or whatever tickled the rational fancy you know between this and the last episode and julia galef plugged harry potter and the methods of rationality and the only reason i remember the only reason i found it was because at a stoplight and i was able to take a note and say look at this later um was this 10 years ago no this would have been it's hard to say something like oh wait almost 10 okay. yeah just about um not because i would have been reading this uh i could look up whatever year i graduated from front range um the community college i went to and it would have been around that year uh within a year it would have been before I graduated there. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, about a decade ago. Okay. Perfect. All right. This line, does line up. Yeah. Um, I was going to guess six or seven, but when you made me think about it, yeah, okay. So, closer to ten. Um, and then, yeah, we... The only other thing that makes me feel uh, like any time has passed with regard to any of this is that I think Method of Rationality wrapped up in 2015, right? Mm-hmm. I'm looking at the publication date, 2010 to 2015. Yeah, okay. so, so in uh, March 2015 will have been... Well, we're hitting up, we're coming up on the five-year anniversary of the Denver area, less wrong. Yeah. Because we had a handful of meetups that was like just you and me, mm-hmm. and then one with me and just one other person one time. Um, and then the big kickoff where people started coming was for the rap party for MOR, or for, um, yeah, Method of Rationality. And because you're a local celebrity in the in that area, we had like <laughs> 35 people show up. Okay. And probably 10 or 15 of them, 10 or 15 of them still come, yeah. so... And we met some cool people. Yeah. Uh, that's, I think, where, how we met the, the folks in Colorado Springs. Yep. Yeah. So it's awesome. Yeah. And that was five years ago. So, yeah. geez. Yeah, we've we've moved from 
old less wrong and then less wrong died and then less wrong was reborn as less wrong 2.0 yeah and in between there was the diaspora there was yeah. the diaspora everybody had their own blogs and yeah so 2010 less wrong was still going pretty strong i i remember going back to see just like what was happening and eliezer was still posting the sequences at that point he hadn't finished them and there was a lot of posts by uh by scott alexander by Gwern, by all the early movement people in there the people that ended up becoming the diaspora <laughs> yeah exactly and then yeah after a while uh eliezer stopped posting there started getting more serious with uh, uh miri which at the time i think was still siai the singular institute yeah yeah i think they changed their name in 2000 uh, mid 2010s miri's better because it's much easier CI to say yeah it's mm. weird yeah. Well, and Singularity in what 2001 when he started the, the institute wasn't as different. Yeah, it wasn't as pop sciencey of a term. Right. Um I think I I admire a lot of the stuff that Kurt Ray Kurzweil has done, but I think he ruined the word. Mm -hmm. Um <laughs> so I think that's partly I don't know how much of the of the the effort for the rebranding goes on his shoulders, but <laughs> probably some of it. Speaking of Kurzweil and and timelines, uh, uh I recommend, I mean, I don't know, I enjoy this kind of thing. There there's the the Asilomar AI conference where Yudkowsky was there, but he didn't talk. Uh, you can see the back of his head when he asks a question at one point on the YouTube video, uh, which is a very Yudkowsky question. I don't remember exactly what it was, but I remember it being very Yudkowsky. But anyway, <laughs> uh, Kurzweil does this thing where he's like, look, here's all, the, here's all the trend lines. Here's how I'm completely still right about everything and all everything's still on track, like I've always said. And like I've always, I've always liked Kurzweil because he dares to make these predictions. Like people get on his case and I'm just like, Okay, you make predictions then, you know, and 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 like he tends to be more accurate than not, right? Like, I don't know, like you can always you can always find ways to nitpick, but like very often, kind of the spirit of what he's trying to say is accurate, even if he fails to anticipate some particular change in paradigm. Mm -hmm. I've always been impressed, and and the thing, the, the point of me bringing this up is like this was a fairly recent conference, and he's basically saying all of his kind of trend line predictions are still on track, more or less. So, and don't get me wrong, I like I like Kurtzweil too. Yeah. I, I think, um, like like I said, for me, it was the specifically around the use of the word singularity. Yeah, I, I've yeah. heard people who have no idea what any technical definition of that would even mean use the word. And right. I think that's part of why. So it's like it just got uh, distilled too mm -hmm. much. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily, it, it's not a, it's not like this guy's out there saying a bunch of nonsense and that's why that's why it happened. I just, I meant that word specifically. Yeah, it became kind of a marketing word and yeah. I, I get Miri wanting to move away from that. The only thing that I can, and I... Let's see. I'm trying to think of what I've read from Kurzweil. I know I watched one or two of his documentaries, um, but like Michio Kaku makes like by 2030, will he'll make like highly specific predictions <laughs> um, that have like five components in them. <laughs> and I don't know, maybe he's really confident and I guess we'll see in 10 years. I, I'll have to double check exactly what mm -hmm. I'm thinking of. But there was one about like in 2030, we'll have like basically super cheap TVs where it'll be like wallpaper and it'll be able to simulate uh, environments. And I forget all of the ands in the statement, but it was, <laughs> it was several. Um, yeah. And he could just say like, maybe we'll have super cheap, uh, you know, uh, very thin screens. Yeah, yeah. Very thin screens that are, <laughs> that are so inexpensive that you can plaster your walls with them, um, which would be kind of cool. It'd be yeah. like the, what was the Imaginarium thing that they had in community? Their little closet. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I, I remember what you're talking yeah. about. Uh, Troy and Abed had this like closet with just like yellow tape grid squares painted on it, and they would go in there and like imagine, <laughs> and it'll be like that. Except you get a, or like the holodeck. Is that what it was called in Star Trek? Yes. Yeah. yeah perfect. 
All I remember is the version of that that they had in the X-Men to train the X-Men. Oh, yeah, the and, danger room. Yeah, but that at least simulated, like, actual things. It wasn't just vision. Although I'm assuming the holodeck did, did it that, did too. too, yeah, because yeah. yeah. they had force fields and yeah. they could materialize things. Yeah. Oh, smart. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, we get force fields and TV walls, and we're, we're all the way to a holodeck. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Yep. The porn industry is going to be wild with this stuff. <laughs> porn yeah. industry is always pushing oh. the technological envelope. Yeah. I mean, that's that's canon. In, in, in Deep Space Nine, the only purpose of the of the hollow suites is for, you know, prostitution. So That makes sense. Yeah. They were seeing the future. Not a, not as we want it to be, but as it will be. It wasn't yeah. the only purpose. It's but not, it was a major purpose. The, yeah. I mean, yeah. if you think about the internet. Yeah. yeah. Like how much of the internet is... Like drug trafficking and porn. (laughs) I do want to point out, like I, I just got to thinking about this the last two days. The you know ten year retrospective on the rationality movement. I think it's really fucking impressive. Oh yeah. Because it was. I mean, it was literally start out just as like one guy's blog, and then it turns sort of into like a shared blog. And at this point, we've got um, multiple community houses across the nation. We've got this, uh, the CFAR workshop thing that they do. And more importantly, there's like a lot of um, thought influence that, that has come out of this. Like, mm-hmm. I think the major acceptance of AI as a uh, existential threat to humanity by technological and thought leaders is in strong part because of the original righteous community influence. Yeah, the concern about X, X risks in general. Yeah, like um, Nick Bostrom came directly out of Less Wrong and he's... Um, what Oxford Future of Humanity Institute yeah. head. And yeah, I, I think that's very much on the shoulders of, of the rationalist community. There's this whole EA effective altruism movement, which I was going to bring that up. Yeah. Came out of that. There's actually one state legislature who is ex- explicitly rationalist uh, legislator in New Hampshire. I think it is. I mean, there's, it's impressive. The strides that have happened in the past 10 years and Scott Alexander, major, you know, influencer. He's, uh, over a hundred thousand views on some of his blog posts, and is quoted uh, by people in was it the New York Times? Uh, you know, I, I hear him quoted all the time by like Ezra Klein and and um, people in kind of the more San Francisco scene. Um, I know there was there was a couple major national publications that have I'm quoted not, him or responded I, to him. I haven't heard of that, but but I I believe you. I mean, he's he definitely has a lot of pull with kind of the intelligentsia of of the country, which. Is great because he's a great representative, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, I think the movement's done great. I think it's no, it's no small part due to his continuing work because Yudkowsky did a great thing with the sequences, but he's been disengaged for years now, mm-hmm. and that's fine. He's doing his own thing. Um, I, I do kind of miss his voice, honestly. Yeah, it seemed like he always wanted though to move into the domain of working on AI research, and that was kind of what he was trying to rally everybody behind. Yeah. And he was a little bit disappointed when, like, all the readers of Methods of Rationality didn't go into AI fields. <laughs> but I honestly, like, think that the rationality community has, well, I mean, uh, Inuyash already brought up effective altruism. But, yeah, like, the focus on other X risks, like pandemics, uh, the fact that there's, like, meal squares, like, uh, and other, you know, like, weird Silicon Valley startups, uh, some of which are, like, coming out of that kind of community. And I really like how much progress people have made towards, like, rationalist psychology and self-help. Uh, I used to, I, I was kind of interested in that stuff, like, in my, like, early teens and then got really quickly turned off by looking at how much of it was woo or none of it had been studied at all. Just, there's much better 
ability to find recommendations on how to combat acrasia. Yeah, stuff like Beeminder and Compass and so forth came out of this community. Yeah. And I, it's interesting because, like, I, I, like, put in the little comment section of my first donation to Miri, like, this is, I got here for Methods of Rationality. Um, and somebody who worked there wrote back, like, commented on, because this is when I had a blog for, like, a year. Um, and they either commented on that or messaged on there and said, hey, you know, because it was only, like, 80 bucks or something because I was delivering pizzas part-time. Uh, but they were doing, like, a fundraiser, like, you know, dollar for, or whatever, two for one or something for the end of the month. Mm-hmm. Um so it's like, that's, that's when really you should, that's always been my thing too. Side note, if I ever had like a, you know, one of the interview questions I got for my job was like, if you had a hundred million dollars, what would you do? And one of the obvious things would people say, I'd give a bunch to charity. And it's like, yes, but what I would do is I'd like double my impact by saying I would have, I would set it up in advance and say, I will do a two, you know, two to one match or a one to one match for mm-hmm. the whole summer. Mm-hmm. And like, then that way it'll encourage more people to give and I get to give money. Mm-hmm. Um, the, but I remember when we had, we had Dukowski on the podcast, I wonder if he feels any different now because I knew at the time that he was in dialogue with Sam Harris about like, maybe like Harris was thinking about writing a book or something on the subject, um, which I don't think he's ever going to get around to doing because I don't think he has anything like novel to say on the subject, um, which isn't bad. It's just, you know, he, he's, this isn't his, his thing. Um, it's, it's an interest, but not like a, whatever you see what I'm saying. It's not like meditation. Yeah. Um, but I because I, I, I pushed back on him because he said like he, Yudkowsky said something along the lines of he didn't feel hopeful even though like, he this is getting more mainstream attention, and maybe that's because you know most articles have a Terminator at the top of the pictures or at the top of the article or something, <laughs> but when Neil deGrasse Tyson was on Harris's podcast, Harris was riding his AI bandwagon you know really hard that year or something, and brought that up to him and. Tyson's thing was like, oh, I'd just shoot it with a shotgun if I felt like it was trying to get out of the box. And Harris failed to explain <laughs> to him like why. I would just switch the computer off. Yeah. yeah. And Harris failed to convince him that this was actually a hard, like, not, like, like it wasn't that easy. Yeah. But he's and come then, around recently. Well, that was because when he had Yudkowsky on, um, Harris brought up to Yudkowsky Neil deGrasse Tyson's uh, position. And Yudkowsky's rejoinder was simple as hell. It was just like, I feel like he's not giving himself, he's not giving the the intelligence in the box, the credit that he would give himself if he was locked in a box and there was a scientist pointing a gun at him. Mm-hmm. And so imagine if this thing was 100 times smarter than you. It, it wouldn't be a matter of just walking over and unplugging it. And then shortly after, apparently uh, Tyson listens to Harris's podcast and says, that convinced me, I changed my mind. So like we've got people who I don't know, maybe this will come up on Cosmos Season 2, which I don't even know if that's actually happened or happening. It hasn't anything. happened yet. So maybe they'll do an Hopefully AI episode and he'll mention that this is actually a thing. And it'll air at 7 o'clock on Fox on Sunday, right? Like, you, that's yeah. pretty cool. You want to know something, what really surprised me. I mean, first of all, the rationalist community has always been five years ahead of everyone else as far as I can tell. Like, I always feel kind of like an intellectual hipster when people tell me about this new thing. I'm like, yes, I knew about that UBI. five years ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Past yeah. that, actually. Yeah, exactly. But um, on 60 Minutes recently, there was uh, a thing about uh, reversing aging, basically. A uh, scientist researching it. And my parents, like, sat me down and showed me this because they're really, you know, <laughs> into it. And they are of the mainstream. They watch, like, 60 Minutes and shows like that, right? And I was like, oh, God, here's going to be another one of those, you know... It's unnatural and all life must end or something. And uh, the interviewer was talking to the, the researcher and the scientist said something about like, you know, it would be it would be something positive about ending aging, right? And the interviewer, who looks to be somewhere in his 60s or 70s, said, yeah, let's get on that. I would really like that. Uh, not those exact words, but a very positive affect. And I was like, 
holy shit, the world has completely turned around from where it was 20 years ago. Like, that that blew my mind. And my parents were actually, like, believing it. And, I mean, believing in, like, this is when I talked to them about ending aging 5, 10 years ago. They were like, eh, that'll never happen. Who would even want to have such a thing? And now they're like, this is a great idea, son. And I was yeah. like, wow, this is, yeah. this, I love how things have progressed i want to say the advent of crispr is probably one of the things that mm. is primarily responsible for people becoming more hopeful about that kind of thing or more uh terrified i uh, what was the name of the book there was this audiobook i was listening to when i went to um the new york solstice because phoenix and i drove so we had a lot of time to listen to audiobooks i was trying to i think it was uh some book that was like talking about the 10 biggest things that are going to change the future and the the view they had about um ending aging was so negative or at least so like you may not like it but here's the things that might happen <laughs> mm-hmm. and like yeah. right, i think it was just everything uh that they brought up about how like oh there's going to be genetically engineered babies that are going to be healthier and smarter yeah here's some bad news in 50 years your body will 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 cease to break down and get worse and worse until you eventually die forever <laughs> yeah. how bad does that sound yeah I, um, I, I read um that book lifespan by that aging researcher recently which is why Robert i started Degray? taking in right. in uh, what? Sorry. Lifespan. Uh... Is that is that right? Is it lifespan or is it? Was it Aubrey de Grey? No, because he's the guy who looks like Gandalf, but he's like forty-one. <laughs> I know. No, no. This guy's like the head of the Harvard Re- Aging Research Lab. He's he's a much more legit scientist. Oh, uh, David Sinclair. Yeah, David Sinclair. But yeah, th- I bring it up to say like I've started taking a lot of supplements from that book, and they make me feel a lot mm-hmm. more. I have a lot more energy um, because of those. But that's a tangent. The point is. Oh yeah, this like, was on my reading list. Sorry, yeah, go on. Like, like the first half of the book is this like highly de- detailed and technical explanation of like his theory of aging and why he thinks these supplements work. The second half is like an impassioned argument why it's okay to want to live longer, <laughs> which which I was very bored by. Yeah. Um, but in light of this conversation, I'm like, yeah, I mean, good on you. I, I guess that needs to be part of the package at this point. But yeah, and I'm glad that it is. I'm glad that the the opinions are changing on that topic and and about AI too because like. I used to feel like, I used to feel like I basically was part of a cult when, when, like, whenever I brought up like AI around like acquaintances or like my f- extended family, I just kind of m- mumble self consciously because I'm aware that I sound crazy. But like now, it's it's a mainstream topic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's and now it exists in the world. We've mm-hmm. got these baby AIs. Yeah, that still are very impressive. GPT two and uh, the chess and. AlphaGo. AlphaGo yeah. and StarCraft, if you happen to know. StarCraft. If you happen to be Star-Go. old enough to know what, <laughs> young enough to know what StarCraft is. Um, old it, slash young. Yeah, <laughs> in a certain specific geek window. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like the people who know what MUDs are. Yeah, right, right. Maybe this is just a confidence issue, but I remember when I first was getting into cryonics, I didn't tell anybody. Uh-huh. I felt, for whatever reason, embarrassed. You know, because it, it, it was a weird thing, and it's I don't know how much more widely popular cryonics in particular is, but... Mm-hmm. I was giving the pitch to my coworkers this week and they were interested. Mm-hmm. And uh well I gave it I gave it to two of them last week. I've got three and then the the other one was in the office this week and they were talking about it and I was out of the room and they're like, "Oh, Zoobs is back. We got here. Tell them about what you're, you're going to be frozen when you die." And I was like, and it I I have no qualms whatsoever talking about it and if, and they they seemed genuinely interested in hearing about it. Um and it's that's not a, I guess that's only tangential in the fact that like I don't know if this is a this is yet to hit like critical mass where people are going to be signing up a lot yet, but mm-hmm. it w- I I'm confident it will be. 
maybe. Right. Well, I don't know. I am leaning more towards the connectome preserving uh, plasticine thing. Yeah. Which I, I think you guys actually interviewed the person that's working on that. We did. Before I was on the show. Twice. <laughs> yeah. Downside is, is that that's not an option yet, it's is it? It's destructive. No. Well, no, you can sign up for it. I think you can be on the wait list or something. <laughs> well, but what happens if I die while I'm on the wait list? Yeah, right. no. No, it's... And he's also, last I heard a couple of years ago, literally the only person working on it. So, Which is really bizarre to me yeah, because this be is nice such a hot topic. If could at least have like an assistant, you know? <laughs> well, I think that, you know, there's probably like at least more than literally one person working on it but well in his words he was the only person that he knew who was working on it yeah. uh, maybe, maybe when he says he maybe he meant he and his I team think no i think he said that he was working solo like that, one that time my, when we interviewed him too, yeah. he was like he said hold on a sec let me go change some some uh files or whatever because he was literally mixing stuff in the lab because he doesn't have grad students to do it for him huh yeah. well they now have Connectome, the Brain Preservation Foundation. Cool. Which, Things are uh, pro- progressing. Might just be this one guy's website, <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, originally, it looks Miri was just Eliezer posting that... stuff. Yeah. Another exciting development on this front is the whole neural lace thing, where mm. the the you know the the Elon Musk uh, fronted. Oh. Um. What's it? What's the company called? I forget what the company. Um. Are called. you talking about the? The brain computer interface thing. Yeah, the yeah. brain computer interface, where where like the presentation on on that was way ahead of where I expected it to be. I mean, it's still sort of experimental, but like they're they're very ambitious with it. Like I don't know if y'all did y'all watch it. I could that could come not. soon enough for me because I like empathize so hard with Elon Musk talking about how terrible it is to have gone from well we used to have these you know computers with keyboards that you could use all of your fingers to type on and now we've got our thumbs <laughs> and you're just de I, I like i feel so much pain when i'm trying to keep up with correspondence on my phone and uh-huh. i'm not able to pull my laptop out yeah <laughs> i i don't put much stock in presentations because they always show you the stuff that they have working well and you know yeah. you don't get to see all the things that break immediately if you try to go off script sure i mean so they've apparently actually tested some versions of this in mice and it works or whatever value of works means and but basically their plan is to have a thing where like they drill a little hole in your skull it's like an outpatient surgery they drill a hole in your skull they get this little robot that like goes inside your skull somehow and stabs like a thousand literally a thousand electrodes throughout your cerebral cortex and uh and then there's like input output um capability with these electrodes because that like there's a whole bunch of little innovations like the, the electrodes themselves being like able to tolerate that environment and, and detect really, really small voltages. So they end up getting like the voltage trace across basically your whole, you know, human part of your brain, the, the outside. Mm-hmm. And um, if our understanding of how the brain works is correct, then that should give you the ability to like control things or even have it like shoot information into your brain. Um, fucking awesome. I know Kung Fu. Yeah. If I could just type with my brain, that would just be such a quality oh. of life improvement. Yeah. Well, it depends Absolutely. on how fast you typed. If I could, type I mean, I only even, bring that up because Stephen Hawking, you know, uh, could type with his brain, right? Yeah. But it took yeah. ages. Yeah. So. Yeah, but he was pretty prolific. <laughs> I think you wouldn't be able to get an MRI anymore, though, if you had that, right? Oh gosh, no. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Unless the metal was a uh, non uh, non ferrous, but even then, they'd then probably freak out. It has to be ferrous because it has to conduct electricity in order uh, to be useful as an input. I, I input. got a um, photo from a coworker of mine that was amazing, which was his. He was a former neuro. He worked in neurology. He works in cancer now, but his wife still works in a uh, some neurology thing. And 
she sent him a picture of like this is why uh you don't <laughs> i don't know I, I forget what the exact like quote was which is bad but it was a wheelchair that was smashed like just absolutely like as though like a giant had taken a wheelchair and like smashed it into the front of an mri oh. apparently somebody had left a wheelchair in there oh my God. <laughs> luckily no patient was sitting in the wheelchair but it was just like there was something about like this is why you don't let interns use the mri somebody was aluminum. in the in the machine and that view. is aluminum non-magnetic well, I, I was gonna say ferrous means I, has iron in it, and like gold, right. gold is superconductive and has no iron in it. Yeah, yeah. So um, I guess they could use gold or something. Yeah, but yeah, I, I, guess I don't know how, just how, how corrosive that would yeah. be, or how how again part, like titanium might be a good good go go to right. It doesn't. It's non-reactive with the immune system. Um, I'm not gold sure. is you can definitely get an MRI with with uh, yeah. with with titanium. So yeah. yeah, I think they'll probably figure it out. I'm I'm first in line though. Oh, yeah. I, I'm my, dis- my my usual thing on these is well on things in general but i think specifically with drilling something into my brain i'm second in line <laughs> i i want the gen 2 version yeah. um i've i well i have bought gen 1 versions like the 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 closest i've got to this is i've got uh a um transcranial direct current stimulation unit and i bought what i think was the first commercially available one on the market like when i was first looking into this like a decade ago mm-hmm. um i there was nowhere that was making them. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, well there's, I, and I, I don't know enough about uh, electrical engineering to ever hope of making a safe one myself that I'd put on my head and zap my brain with. Um, so I was like, well, maybe I could pay somebody to do it. And then when I was still tossing around the idea of trying to figure out how to get someone that I could trust and you know, how, like how to budget getting this all together, someplace online was selling these. So I bought one of the first commercially available units and I want to compare it to yours. Cause you just bought one a few weeks ago. Yeah. It's a, uh, I have the halo sport, which is a, cool consumer ready one that's been tested in clinical trials and it is the second generation uh and i like it a lot i mean it sits over the band of your ears and um it is just for training the muscle memory portion of your brain so it's for doing exercise or doing something like learning a musical instrument Mm. i have a lot of ideas for what i want to try to train with it though like sign language i have been using it with beat saber (laughs) Which cool. I think I mentioned before, but it just looks fucking hilarious because you already have to wear this big VR headset in order to play Beat Saber. So now I've got a headset over a headset, <laughs> and then I'm usually playing Beat Saber like in my underwear because you get really fucking hot playing that game. So <laughs> yeah, the weird cyberpunk future. I'm going full cyborg. Yeah. Well, yeah, they they compared the surgery to uh, they wanted to be like a LASIK surgery, and and Stephen and I have already. Oh no, all all three of us already have that. So. and me soon, yeah. hopefully, because I just oh. got vision insurance. Nice. Laser eye group. So that, that yeah, like bit of a tangent, but I was told that um, I have astigmatism and mm-hmm. nearsightedness. So they were like, if you get LASIK, then you'll have your distant vision corrected, but when you get old, your close vision will deteriorate, and you'll end up needing glasses. And I was just like. Oh, well, that's not worth it. And then now I'm thinking, oh, I'm like, totally yeah, but I'm not getting old. So. <laughs> <laughs> and also, like, that happens to everyone. Uh, yeah. Well, it wouldn't have happened to me. Or, like, I'm talking like I've already gotten the surgery. But <laughs> my close vision's very good, and it would continue to stay sharp. It's just that I'm going to oh, need really? glasses forever anyway because my far vision is shit. Yeah. So it would reverse. But, I mean, I'm hoping that the technology gets better by the time I'm old. That there's going to be better and better ways to correct stuff. So I might as well do it now, especially if I've got the vision insurance. Mm-hmm. And if you get yeah. it where I got it done, they'll give you touch-ups for life. Hmm. Well, I guess basically they'll give you more surgery for the rest of your life. Um, <laughs> I was hoping surgery. that touch-up was less uh, inv- like less of an ordeal than um, regular, but it's not. Because oh. they use the word touch-up. I guess that means oh. that you spend two seconds under the laser rather than eight. But like that's not the hard part. The yeah, hard part but... is the 
the two weeks of disgusting tasting antibiotics that run through your like the hole in your eye down your throat do, do you remember those yeah it's yeah. somehow it's it's awful i don't understand it and yeah. it's like i i mean it's amazing how much of it gets no, into your throat um well i mean the trick is you can you put it on this way and it drains out this way and then i usually just would drink tea when i was putting in the drops too but um then then the 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 two, two or three weeks of paralyzing concern afterwards that I'm going to scratch my eye and t- you know rip yeah, my retina yeah. off. And yet, like the second morning I woke up doing this and I'm a light sleeper, so that woke me up immediately and I'm, I'm no one could hear me scratching my eye. Um, but I was fine. And the main thing that also kept me sane about it was that like, this makes me sound like I'm, uh, what am I, like I'm, uh, have a big ego, but like the average idiot gets LASIK done all the time and almost no doctors have worked with a patient who, who's ruined their eye. Yeah. But you know, the, the guy who I got my LASIK with, he's done, he's worked with several thousand patients. And I think he said he's had one person um, who ruined their eyes afterwards. And that's because they got wasted the night after oh and had been wearing contacts for a decade oh. and went to go remove their contact lenses. <sighs> So, oh my god uh, oh why did you tell me yeah. that i yeah. kind of wanted that reaction i didn't know how bad it would be so yeah um, i mean yeah regardless of how much you get ablated away they still have to peel your your cornea away so it's going to be a big recovery but yeah they i don't have to they can laser directly on your current cornea prk is what i got but the recovery for that is so much worse yeah mm. you basically I, have to daredevil it for like a week right yes for a week i had no vision and uh, i had to have people lead me around the house and i was just in intense pain for two weeks i think and then very decent amounts of pain for another month after that and this was because Ugh. you didn't want to be conscious during the surgery or no this is because uh, i couldn't i couldn't have something touch my eye i got enough of a thing about eyes that they gave me a double dose of um what is the thing that calms you down valium valium a double dose and i was still freaking out when it came down onto my eye and they're like you're going to rip your cornea we're not going to do the surgery on you and i said is there any other option they're like we can laser right on the surface of your eye but the recovery is awful and i said do that they let you consent to that while on double dose of valium Uh, i think i had already told them that this could be an option okay yeah if Yeah. yeah Since this is now a horror podcast, um, <laughs> I just wanted to say, like, like I was, I was moderately apprehensive. Like, I, I had kind of heard that it, that people, that it was kind of not a big deal, but like, I was not prepared for how not a big deal it was because they gave me Valium and Dilaudid, and it was just, it was just like nothing. It, it, it was like having somebody like clip your fingernails, as far as my like mind was concerned. I was yeah. just like, oh, so that's what it looks like to not have your cornea on. That's cool. <laughs> if you don't have like a weird thing about nothing can touch your eyes, then yeah, it's fine. Like I couldn't even wear contacts before mm-hmm. I tried. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I, hand- I couldn't watch other people put in contacts because that would freak me out so much. How did you handle the the month of eye drops? I fucking just powered through from it. A, from a distance, I mean, I, I would guess? I would literally hold my eyelids open and like force it in. Uh, it was it was a pain. Yeah, for me the the interesting part about getting it done was I one of my coworkers had described it and they they do this thing where they kind of push down and not pop your eye out, but they give it they give you, they, <laughs> they, they they give it some extra um, pressure area to work with mm-hmm. and it does it does pressure it out a little bit. Mm-hmm. And he was like, it really hurts, so be ready for that. And like. I felt pressure, like someone was pushing on my face, yeah. like, but not, not hard at all. And then, yeah, when they, when, like you said, when they, when they peel back your cornea, it was like, 
uh, really, really low res. Yeah. And it was, it was, it was, in, it was merely interesting. Right. <laughs> yeah. And it, it, I wasn't the least bit alarmed. My uh, exactly. coworker got her LASIK done over lunch and came back and worked the rest of the day. <laughs> that strikes me as a little irresponsible. I took, I went home and took a nap because that yeah. was what the doctor, that was doctor's orders. So yeah. my wife fed me a quesadilla because we, there was nowhere nearby to get like easy, like feed a blind person food. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I had a quesadilla and went to bed listening or listening to the episode of, uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine where one of the detectives gets lasik surgery so. <laughs> i gotta say even with the horrible recovery of prk one of the best things i've ever done in my life mm. and this was within the last decade uh-huh. no was it oh it was right around 10 years it? may yeah. have been before 2010 i'm not sure really yeah you still feel that good about it though so yes yeah absolutely yeah that's great we should probably move along, but before we do that, any major personal life things changing over the past 10 years? Let's oh. go around the circle. Yeah, I have a lot of them. I mean, uh, I switched careers twice, uh, <laughs> moved, had my house burned down, changed genders. <laughs> uh, man, yeah. I made a, I, yeah a lot of these changes were directly the result of lesser wrong in the rationality community or indirectly hmm. from um inspiration that i got from reading Gwern and realizing that like this is a person putting science in a framework where i can understand it and i'm super interested in it and uh and then just like kind of changing the way i thought about um well, changing values, really. Like, I, I'd always kind of, like, held a bunch of the values that the lesser-run community held as important, I guess. But uh, I didn't have vocabulary for them or any way to really refine them. Things like, uh, oh, gosh, like um, <laughs> empiricism, I guess. Just kind of, yeah, like, focusing and doubling down on empiricism really was the main thing that, like, helped drive me forward through a lot of things. Doing experiments, seeing what happens, <laughs> and then, like, not making your, you know, forcing yourself to not flinch away from the data, what the data shows. I don't know. Uh, if we're going in a circle, I don't, I, I touched on some of mine already. I mean, it's mundane stuff. Um, I, like, maybe... Uh, if I had to put weight on it, probably 25% of the reason I got into programming was because it seems like a, re- you know, a rationalist thing to do. Um, <laughs> but the, the main thing that got me into it was, uh, or that, that let, let me do it rather was just this, I don't know, the, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure where this would be in the rationalist vernacular, but, um, I don't know, the, like, just do it kind of mentality. Like there's, mm-hmm. there's nothing stopping you from doing whatever you want given that you're not you know violating the laws of physics or whatever <laughs> but um sort of just this the serious attitude of like okay i've got to like take charge um yeah i mean other than that i don't know all the you know regular life stuff that people do got married um got i guess a house which you know is like a it's like a my, my house is basically an apartment um <laughs> i don't know nothing super exciting i'm feeling Rather, like I've not done much, which is totally fine. My life's in a good spot, so. Yeah, but you have a really bad auto- autobiographical memory, so you're probably just forgetting all the stuff. You <laughs> I did all this really cool shit that yeah. I can't remember. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh yeah, that, that time I saved the world. Yeah. Uh, you're just but, uh, really good at, like you know, from my perspective anyway, being really supportive, <laughs> kind of people around you, which yeah. I don't know if you've always been that way. Or I know that 
I think like when we first met and then like a few months at a time you were talking about like trying to deliberately improve on that and I think that that's a really strong point of yours. I appreciate that. I don't know how much credit I get for that being a rationalist thing or not, but you get credit uh, for it regardless. Because oh, well, that's a cool way yeah. to be. I I It's been a I, lot to me personally. It feels like I'm patting myself on the back so I'm reluctant to do it, but like I feel like it's just a natural thing to do. I like when people do it to me. I like, wish more people felt that way. It takes no effort to do really, so um just go forth and be nice to people. Um but yeah, I don't know. I'm I should have thought of a better answer for this. I actually did have notes and stuff, but they're all just random little tidbits about me that aren't aren't interesting. So I'll let you go ahead. Uh, I've had... oh, I guess hold on the cryonics thing too. That oh, is yeah. that is a big <laughs> one. I that would have been around ten years ago that I signed up. Um, so everyone should do that too. Like I don't know. It's I did when you I sign when up I for the thirty year term. Uh, no, I'm I'm on the annual term still through the Cryonics Institute. Um, you for my life insurance? Yeah, for your life insurance. No, uh, Rudy. Oh, that reminds me. Rudy Hoffman was a life insurance agent I worked with. If you're curious about this, you should check out his book that he sent me for free. And I, I think I forgot to email him a thank you. But he's, he, he hooked me up with this like longer package where I think I'm paying into it forever. Hmm. Um, but if like, if I live to be ninety something, there's like three hundred thirty thousand dollars in it that I get to just take out in cash. Okay. But it's not like I have to hit ninety first. I can take out less money before that. Yeah. And that's just mine. Yeah. I don't. I don't have to pay it back. It's on a loan or whatever. I got um, a similar thing, except mine explicitly ends after thirty years. So I've got another twenty years in which I either have to die or come up with the difference between what it pays out and what it'll cost. To, so to it does preserve. pay out in twenty years, though. Twenty years from now, yeah. Oh, it was so thirty years from the start. At least it's not like a use it or lose it policy that would have been a kind of a shit deal um yeah so anyway rudy hoffman wrote a book called the um the affordable immortal which you can find on amazon and uh if you're curious about this and it sounds way too out of reach or something check it out cool i've made a note yep me too me too (laughs) (laughs) uh so i wow i've had a lot of changes over the last 10 years i think 10 years ago i was still in my alcoholic phase where i was drinking close to a fifth of vodka every night um it was near the end though uh and after i quit that i started working out and i mean i have i have regressed a bit since then i think i'm like eight pounds heavier now than i was a few years ago but no one can tell you look buff as shit <laughs> <You're> <laughs> okay. still great, dude. all right all right i ever since the back injury i've worked out much less um but the i mean i think the big change happened I I quit drinking, I got surgery, I lost weight, and I started recording the HPMR podcast. Uh, and wow, my life really changed around after that because, like, like I said, it started out with seven listeners. So <laughs> every week was just like another win when as more people started listening, you know? And having constant uninterrupted weeks of more affirmation for like two years in a row really does a lot to build up your self-esteem and after that i like started writing and i started like being social and having friends and i had this wonderful relationship which did not end wonderfully but it was i learned a lot i i learned a lot about myself um i learned how to have good sex which was actually really important um and i know we're never going to do a not safe for work episode but i'm curious (laughs) what We don't. We don't have to do it. But yeah. I'm just. I. I'm curious. At what it some means. point, just you and me can sit down. Yeah. We'll turn Wait. off the lights. So we don't have to look at so each other. For the record, I'm already awesome at sex. So I'm curious <laughs> what 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 the reference was like. Like okay. I sucked, then I got good at it. Anyway, sorry. Um. um yeah. But oh, as long as we're boosting your ego, it's worth <laughs> okay. it's worth pointing out that like. Well, I've had some major defeats in the past two years. 
Well, everyone has. I mean, if it was all that, that's live, yeah, right? Yeah, but, exactly. But this podcast, the one I'm doing that is still on your feed, is completely piggybacking off of yours. <laughs> okay. I see. I, I'm not. I don't go to like to the HPMR subreddit like specifically, but I see on the front page of my regular feed. Once every two weeks, someone's like, "Have you guys heard the audiobook?" Nice. Um, <laughs> and it's like, it this this bring this this was my introduction really to the rationalist movement because I was driving a lot and that's how I listened that's how I listened slash read the book and I met you you were yeah. at my wedding like you we're doing this podcast this we're coming up on four years yeah. um like it's it, it wasn't just like this one thing you did now it's behind you this is still happening yeah. and so don't don't uh stop patting yourself on the back for that or okay. at least the rest of us will keep doing it yeah. <laughs> i think the thing that most surprises me is that when i was in my te- late teens and 20s i was really much sort of a violent revolutionary leftist i was very much a burn the system and start over because it's all corrupt kind of thing and now i am much more conservative and i'm still like extremely liberal but i no longer like want to kill everyone in power and <laughs> and eat the rich and burn down the city like I'm like, most of my stuff is in the city. Please don't burn it down. Yeah. People will get hurt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that's, that's been like, very weird. I don't know. That like sounds a little bit like maturity. <laughs> I, I guess. I just... 20-year-old like the, the me would look at... revolutionary thing sounds more like the kind of YA like, yeah, <laughs> mentality. Yeah. It sounds more like you're just like... I would be disappointed. Still Young me would be disappointed in my current self, though. That's a question. Can we go back and answer that for the two of us? Like, how sure. how would you of ten years ago feel about you today? Yeah. Because me of ten years ago, I think would be stoked on who I am today. Yeah. Um, there are, for the most part, I don't I don't feel any sense of accomplishment or like anything like that. Although I recognize that I probably should. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I I think my life is better in every way. It's just that my values have drifted somewhat, and that would be concerning to younger me. Yeah, younger you'd probably hate the fact that you own property yeah. or something, right? Um, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> younger you was weird. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I'm just remembering because I have again my journals, like telling a friend of mine that if I stop believing in magic, then kill me because I'm not mm. me anymore. Mm-hmm. It's like now I don't know. Like the, the like ten years ago, me would have looked back at that, which I guess was another ten years. Like what? What the hell? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's not ten years ago, but. But yeah, like, uh, I'm 33 now, so like 23-year-old me would have been like, well, fuck, like, <laughs> I didn't think, I didn't have the self-esteem to think that I could go into a scientific field, yeah. um, or that, like, I was going to ever make money or understand how to adult, <laughs> how to have, like, stable relationships or manage money or any of that, so, like, the fact that I managed to do a lot of that, and I'm like, it's not even, like, some of this stuff's not even that hard, it was just, there was a big barrier of uh it seeming unattainable the ug field also yeah the ug field the big thing the just like i know nothing about this so it must be the hardest thing in the world <laughs> is that the word for that the ug field uh, i mean mm-hmm. i mean that's, that's kind of the less wrong thing. concept for yeah. it i would say i mean where i was 10 years ago that's probably something i struggled with a lot was just the idea of like i was in, i was in graduate school but just like everything about graduating just seemed impossible it's like this uh, you know, I was uh, in a certain sense. You could say I was in grad school to avoid having to go into the real world. Mm-hmm. That's why I went to college. Yeah, and 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 so like, but that wasn't really a solution because like that's just a, a stress a stressful thing too. And one thing about less wrong is you know that getting a name for it, getting a handle on it, getting getting this idea that like, hey, just recognize that's what's happening. Re- recognize that you're having an aversive reaction to this idea or or this this deadline or whatever and here are some tools or here are some ways of thinking about approaching that i think personally oh, yeah. that's one of the ways less wrong 
and the rationality movement helped me the most in, in a day-to-day sense. Yeah, giving you all kinds of tools and frameworks. Mm-hmm. Like, here's the model I'm using. Here's what the mental motions towards doing that thing look like. Mm-hmm. I wish that I'd had a lot of that stuff explained to me earlier on, but it was still invaluable having, like, read blogs where other people talk about, here's how I do social skills, mm-hmm. or, like, here's how I approach something that seems just really difficult to the point that it makes me so anxious that I can't think about it, like... It makes your problem seem less intractable. The fact yeah. that someone else is like saying, I've had this problem and here are some steps I've used to overcome it. Granted, that's the opening page of every self-help book. But like, I think that there, there's a lot to that. Like you yeah, said, but then there's actual steps. Like I was talking about trying to read self-help books where it was like, I've had these problems too, but then I just learned to believe in myself. Mm. <laughs> or like I started reciting a mantra every day and I was just like, uh, I don't see how this relates to being able to like, I mean, I remember when the UG field was first explained to me, uh, the example was somebody talking about aversive mail and that resonated with me because I would always have this thing where I'd, I'd receive lots of letters and like some of them look uh, like, oh God, that's a tax thing. You're like, oh man, I don't know what the, like, this looks like a bill. This looks like, oh man, did I get like a speeding ticket or something? Like they just pile up and I'm just like, I can't even open those. I don't, but like, you don't actually like consciously think the words I can't open those or I don't want to look at them today. Your subconscious is doing all of that in the background and your conscious mind is going, oh, I really need to do this thing right now. And I'll definitely get to that later today. Mm-hmm. Oh, like, I guess I didn't get to that today, but definitely first thing tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. You're like, when you realize like what's going on subconsciously and that there are ways to fix that, it's like, oh, okay. Like, because like opening the mail and then figuring out what to do about it isn't even that hard. It's just really aversive hmm. because you've like negatively reinforced opening mail so many times yeah it's it's funny because i didn't even realize this about myself until you talked about it but like i used to have that that exact reaction about mail i used to have that reaction about email except maybe mm. even worse because i had like this horrible boss where i would like on an intermittent reinforcement schedule get these horrible <laughs> like like it's the middle of saturday but you're dropping everything and working now because god because uh, i have one of those <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I had this horrible relationship with both of those things and just over time, just kind of turning the crank of, of using the right, you know, the right mindset on, on them. I don't really have any particular emotions about email or mail anymore at all. Mm-hmm. So, and that's, yeah. it's a huge relief, right? Like, like you're carrying so much constant stress and, and, and turmoil that you're not even conscious of, but you're definitely carrying it. And to not have that anymore, it's, uh, you breathe, you know? <laughs> yeah. I feel like we stole a lot of your time. Where were you a decade ago? What have you been up to other than building a media empire that <laughs> is going to be uh, challenged, uh, has been challenged by Disney for its epicness? So, uh, Wait, what? Uh, <laughs> well, media empire was only in the last four years, but that's been a huge thing, obviously. I mean, in the last 10 years, um, I mean, I'm, I got a PhD. I graduated. Uh, I, I, moved to, um, I moved to the Bay Area, and then I moved to Houston, and then I moved here. I got married. I had three kids. I got divorced. Um, uh, I got a real job and then I got a different real job, um, <laughs> which is where I am now. And, uh, just a lot of other stuff in there, you know, been picking what, up hobbies and such. What would young you think of current you? I think they'd be impressed in, in some ways and probably disappointed in some ways because I, have always had and continue to have a uh, delusion, like delusion of grandeur about my my destiny. Yeah, <laughs> like anyone who consumes a lot of science fiction. Yes. Um, 
so uh, just to be honest, like I'd probably be like, oh, you're not running um, Tesla, SpaceX. You're not president of Mars. Yeah, yet. right, right, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and but um, and I'd probably be a bit a bit baffled and confused at some of my like personal relationship decisions, and I would absolutely not understand uh, my. I I, I I had no conception of what it is to have kids. And now I've now my oldest is seven, so I've spent most of the decade having kids, and it's it's not at all what I thought it would be, and it's wonderful, and I would have no frame of reference for it. So that would just be kind of a big confusing. Um, uh, maybe maybe I wouldn't be able to relate to myself if that makes sense. Yeah. Mm, no, that makes perfect sense. When I was thinking about going back in ten year increments, I was like each of the like different 10 year increments of me probably like would kind of recognize myself in each of me but then also there would be these big gaps of this is a different person <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah like if, if i look back not even not even that far i'm just like that person was an idiot <laughs> and uh i'm probably gonna feel that way about myself I, in 10 years I, so. no, like the, the weird thing about again having the journals is that like I, it, it was funny because i first noticed this about my art where um a couple of years like later i'd look back at my art from two years ago and be like god i sucked oh my god that's such crap i can't believe i thought this was so good and spent so much time on it showed it to her. and then like two more years i'd look at it and be like oh no that was that was pretty good actually like and then i feel the same way about like going back and reading my journals where i'm like oh i was such an idiot what embarrassing thoughts and then you get enough distance from yourself and you look back and you're not seeing oh god that was the embarrassing version of me a little while ago but oh that was 17 year old me and like they were really trying their best Mm -hmm. and had all these ideas and thoughts and fears that are valid like and i guess uh also like working at a library with other kids preteens, and like kind of looking at it's like oh there's the frame of reference for like that age of person (laughs) that Mm -hmm. genre of person and it's like no, that like I was a pretty cool teenager, and I was way too hard on myself. <laughs> I don't know. That's kind of an important. I, th- I think it's sense. important to not look back and be like, "God, I was an idiot," because like you're still that person, partially. When I look back on how easy my parents had it with me, and at the time <laughs> I thought I was a rebel because I would get punished for little things, oh, you yeah. know. <laughs> and yeah, now I'm like, oh my god, I did zero drugs, I skipped zero classes, you. Freaking bastards were jerks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I never give my younger self a hard time. Luckily, my period of like, you know, delusions of grandeur, if you want to call it that, only lasted maybe a year or two. So I, I never got too entrenched in that. But my, like, I, I, I'm hoping that you know, in another ten years, I'll look back on. 30 year old Steven and be like, Oh, okay. You know what? Yeah. He wasn't nearly as awesome as he could have been, but he was doing what he could. And you're who you are now because you're, because of who that guy was. So that's how I feel in relation to Steven sub 2010. So, um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I like what Jess just said about being easier on yourself. Cause I, I, I do think it creates a lot of unnecessary internal conflict for me to, uh, I think the label for it is goodism, like, like just the constant mm-hmm. pressure on yourself that you need to be better and that you should be better and it's like just go easy on like first of all that's probably not even doing you any favors yeah and it's and it's causing you very real suffering i've done a lot of work in therapy where i feel like i almost was trying to hide the person that i used to be because i felt like it was shameful and it was just because it was this person who had really bad anxiety and depression and was bad at social interactions and like and it's like that those aren't shameful ways to be like <laughs> that's 
like sad. I, I would never want like some 14 year old to feel like they're a bad person and don't deserve nice things because they're like bad at social interactions or like can't figure out how to get good grades in school because they have ADD or, you know, like <laughs> mm-hmm. people are pretty good on the whole. I, I went, that's another weird like mental shift that I think I've gone through. I can't think of anything like sort of like sadistic torture, like unrepentant sadistic <laughs> yeah. torture that I'd say you should feel bad for who you were 10 years ago. Right. Even if you sucked at all the things that you care about, like you're, I don't know. There's some that, people that are just mean. Well, that, they, they take advantage and abuse other people. Yeah. Yeah. Like maybe that's, that's not even that, sadistic that's, torture. That's the soft just... version of sadistic torture. Okay. Like an unrepented dick. Yeah. Um, then, then yeah, sure. Maybe you should feel bad about it, but only to the extent that it makes you a better person. Uh, well, even if it doesn't, and it at least makes you stop being a dick. And that, yeah. in that sense, my inner utilitarian is like, yeah, okay, you'd be miserable if that stops you from making other people's lives miserable. But for the most part, no one should ever feel bad about what any, you know, they're like, as, as a kid, I was probably a dick. I had a lot of terrible role models, but like, I think, uh, it's, I, I don't blame myself for the things I did when I was 12 or 13. Right. It's been a long time since I've looked back at the mean things I've done and like, felt bad about mm-hmm. it i don't identify with that person at all yeah. right yeah I, mean, I, I share very few atoms with that person <laughs> and very few memories of that person there's some vague sense of physical continuity but like other than that i i don't i don't feel like i relate to that person whatsoever yeah i, I still feel vaguely bad about every single time i was mean to my brother mm. um but that said i don't think it's healthy to like continue to flagellate myself about that at age 30 something <laughs> yeah. so some years ago, I apologized to my brother for one time. I was really like, I, I yelled at him because he ruined one of my save files on Majora's Mask. Because mm-hmm. that, that game has like a time thing where if you, <laughs> and, and I, I like yelled at him and made him feel bad. And like a decade later, 15 years later, I remembered it. And he was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. And I'm like, of course you don't. Because this wasn't, this wasn't like a thing to you. Like you, you remembered it at the time and then it went away. And I, I saw I've been thinking about it for, for ages. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's, Life's weird. Mm-hmm. I, this is the part of the podcast where I get inarticulate. And well, we're supposed to do the less wrong posts, but we're, once again, probably... Do we have time? Because I'd love to. I think to. we got time. All right, good. Let's do them. All right, on to the less wrong posts, then. Uh, did you get a chance to get to them? I did. All right. Okay, our first less wrong post... You're familiar post. with the blog, right? Yeah. Lesswrong.com. <laughs> <laughs> He's heard of it. <laughs> you can find some of Matt's posts at uh, Mordinamail. Mordinamail. That's my handle for everything. All right, so translate that again for me from the the old uh, ancient language. Death of hope. Death of hope. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's the kind of handle you choose when you're 16. Yes. And, and then you never change. I love it. No, I think it's great. I knew I, I recognize the ancient language. Is that what it's called? It's the, the old tongue. The yeah. old tongue from, from Wheel of Time, which yeah. you know, just gives me shit for mentioning because it's the only long series I've ever read that wasn't Harry Potter. Um, but yeah, I, I couldn't remember the word parts. Are, anyway, yes. So that. Cool. Uh, our first post was your strength as a rationalist, uh, which starts off as um, a him telling about a thing that happened to him, an anecdote, as one will, uh, in an IRL, IRC rather, chat room. Do people all know what IRC chat rooms are? I think so. Maybe. They, they still Explained exist. Explained for our listeners. Uh, Internet relay chat. It's basically um, Discord back before Discord existed. It would You would type in real time to people one line at a time and everyone in the room could see it and you would all just kind of chat like that you know how irl is where you do that with meet space this was that but in the computer (laughs) irl irc perfect yeah um anyways uh someone was telling him that a friend of theirs needed medical advice over irc that he'd been having uh chest pains and he called an ambulance and the ambulance came but the paramedics said nothing was wrong and left and now the chest pains were getting worse 
And Eliezer remembers that he was very confused by that story. That he remembered uh, reading that paramedics always have to take someone to a hospital when they complain of chest pains because otherwise they risk um, being hit with a huge lawsuit if it actually was a, uh, a heart attack and they don't have to end up paying the person's bills. So as a matter of policy, you always take someone to the hospital. Um, but he also remembered, you know, he'd be gone to the doctor complaining about chest pains before and the doctor explained, it's not a heart attack, you have this or this or whatever. And every time he'd done that, the doctor had always been right. And so he was he was confused by the story, but like he waved it off and said, yeah, the paramedics were probably right. And then it turned out uh, his friend came back a little later, said that this friend of theirs made everything up entirely. Uh, and at that point, uh, Eliezer begins the self-flagellation uh-huh. <laughs> where uh, he says that he he felt really bad about this because he had explained an entirely fictional story within his existing model by contorting his thought process to fit it. Mm -hmm. And he should have at that period, as soon as he was confused, stopped and noticed and said, I don't think this is in the post, but it's become sort of a meme, or at least for a while. I notice I am confused Mm -hmm. is the term that was used because whenever you are confused, that is a sign that either, uh, the story is wrong or something about your model is wrong. Um, that if you can change your model to explain any anomaly, even one that never happened, uh, I believe the line was a hypothesis that forbids nothing, permits everything, and thereby fails to constrain anticipation. And the, I, I it wasn't in this post, but somewhere on the blog too, like the, the, the issue is that like that little note of dis disconcerning, like confusion, mm-hmm it's just a failure of human architecture that that's not a blaring siren. Mm -hmm. It's just like a beep. That's confusing. And part of the training that as a rationalist is to try and promote that to conscious attention when you notice it. And I make an effort of saying either in my head or out loud, I notice I'm confused Mm -hmm. if I'm confused by something. And that's one of the, um, the core principles of skepticism that Brian Dunning's articulated over the last 15 years of his podcast of like, before you, you know, move mountains to try and explain some bizarre event that someone's describing to you, first things first, make sure it actually happened. Um, this is that's a, a little more straightforward than, uh, you know, trying to map a something into your existing mental model and stuff. But it's the same. It's in essence uh, has serves a similar core. Is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If I had to guess, I would say that this is some kind of artifact of having minds that evolved to make models. I mean, it would be, okay, it, it's raining, and now it stopped raining, and um, maybe God is crying. <laughs> I don't know. Like, people kind of come up with stories to explain why things happen, and then they, I guess, like, corroborate them over time. And the model has some kind of explanatory power. I mean, we have, like, Newton's laws, which aren't exactly right, but they had explanatory power. Uh, but we have, like, as a as a species standing on the shoulders of giants who have actually done the math, we have good models now and it makes a lot less sense for us to try to come up with an explanation uh, than to kind of pause and be like, well, it makes more sense that this person was making something up. Although the thing with the paramedics, the first thing of course that jumped into my mind was uh, that's actually not true. The paramedics do not have to take you to the hospital if you refuse care. (laughs) Oh yeah. I mean, of course, you know, the, 
Elias probably knew that, and that was probably one of the things that was disconfirmed early on. But like, it was just like at, at me reading this story, I couldn't get that out of my head because I was like remembering a time when I was doing volunteer EMS and we showed up on scene of someone who had cut their finger off and they refused care. They're like, I'm Oof. just gonna duct tape it back on. Oh my god! And we had to leave because you're not actually allowed to force somebody to the hospital if they yeah. don't want to. But we're like, dude, you really okay? Do you just need like two people to to? affirm their verbal consent or do you need them to sign something saying okay you're oh, telling us sign something yeah. or if they like are unable or you know uncooperative but like you, you can use verbal consent there's some like confusing legal stuff around it but basically like i, I remember an ems uh, person telling me that one time they went to someone who was having a heart attack and they refused care because it would be too expensive for them to go to the hospital. That was the same reason this guy with the finger said that. Because like, even though we were the volunteer EMS unit, so it was like the, the ambulance ride is not going to cost anything and the care we give in the ambulance. But once we give you to the hospital, it's going to probably like bankrupt you, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. And so the, the EMS team left and she said like the whole time they were just hoping, I hope he falls unconscious soon and his wife calls us back. Because once you're unconscious, you can't. Um, refuse care consent, yeah. yeah and they show up oh there's an unconscious guy looks like he's having a heart attack to the hospital you go mm. yeah uh, if, if that fills you with this awesome sense of, of <laughs> whatever there's a great subreddit for that called a boring dystopia uh, where it's like the, the whole sentiment is like oh yeah i've decided to can discontinue living because i can no longer afford it um <laughs> yeah <laughs> my god yes um yeah one thing i like i i think that both of the uh, the ones we're going to discuss today are, are on similar topic but like i, I find that uh, people lie a lot and it, it's a nice it's a nice framing for, for being like uh, like I used to I think I used to be a lot more credulous and over time just been a lot quicker with the filter of rather than thinking like hmm that's odd that uh, that, that story doesn't quite make sense but I'll just be like that's bullshit <laughs> and, and like you're people lie so much honestly mm-hmm. like you're so but you're, seriously, like, like you're, you're so likely to be right if you just assume people are lying <laughs> if their story doesn't make sense. They're not even necessarily lying out of bad faith. I remember uh, when I was a little kid, my mom would just make shit up all the time. Like, she would make up her own science facts. And, hmm. like, I really think that there's this human instinct to, like, that there's a comfort in, like, having things make sense or there being some kind of story to something. But I remember one time my mom was like, bees bees aren't scary because they just want to drink the flowers or and i was just like okay and then another time i was wearing this floral bathing suit and a bee was buzzing around me and i was like don't worry it just thinks you're a flower but like before that she had told me bees go and sting flowers in oh, order to like sting drink. flowers she, yeah she's like the bees go sting the flowers in order to like drink the nectar which she didn't know what the hell she was talking about she just made that up and then like so of course she's like Oh, don't worry. It's just, it thinks you're a flower, and I'm like, oh, so it's gonna sting me to try to drink my nectar. Like, okay. <laughs> and I remember being like, I forget. Like, I think I was not going to school at that time, so I would have had to been like less than five years old and realizing my mom was full of shit. She's just making shit up. Like, yeah. I was reading books about biology at the time. Of course, they were for kids or whatever. But like, I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> so like, really early, I was like, oh, my parents will just make shit up. So like, of course, everybody must be making shit up to me if like you know, wow. <laughs> if my parents are. I've been trusting forever. I still am pretty trusting, unfortunately. I have this thing. I've been trying really hard to work on it, but I still do it sometimes where I lie out of like social nicety. Like white lies? I guess, yeah. Just something to like make things less awkward. And the ethics it's a bad habit that are because really you get, confusing. you get stuck in a 
web of lies, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, we I, I would love to do a whole episode. Actually, that was another thing about radical honesty because the ethics around lying get really confusing when it comes to like consent. Yeah. Like whether or not someone can, uh, uh, this is, would be going off on a huge tangent, but like the short version of this is uh, like the standard culture, it is acceptable and expected that you do white lies mm-hmm. in order to not hurt people's feelings right? or in order to go with whatever like the, the, uh, you know, like socially acceptable way to respond to certain things is. So doing radical honesty is actually subversive. Most people don't want it. <laughs> I tried to do radical honesty, but like with people who have consented. I always wondered, like, sometimes you'll be telling a story and, and, and then I'll just be like, okay, if I tell this as it happened exactly, it will be boring and take 10 times yeah. as long. Mm-hmm. I can just make like a, a kernel of the story, which is not... It's not, a, it's not a lie, but neither did it happen exactly this way. It's, I it's, almost feel like that's a public service sometimes yeah, when, you're yeah. not, when you're not altering the facts in a way that's going to mislead anybody in a yeah. dangerous way, but you're just you're just making a more exciting story or one that's more palatable to listen to. That's how I, that's how I think <laughs> about it, too. I don't really worry about it too much, but I do sometimes feel like I hope this isn't like, misleading Am I being anyone. unethical right yeah, now right. <laughs> I, by I, making a better story for my friends? Yeah, I'm holding back a bunch of anecdotes and sidebars because we're running low on time, but I do mm-hmm. the same thing. And I feel dirty when I do it. Like, <laughs> yeah. so I'll be at work and I'm explaining, like, you know, something that happened on the way in. And I'm like, well, I'll save them the long version. Right. And then, like, I feel like I'm not telling the truth. And I feel like that comes off. Hmm. And it's 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 weird. <laughs> and I don't I don't know a quick way around that. I know what so, you mean. Yeah. We'll, we'll solve it later. Deal. So, yeah, the title of the post is Your Strength as a Rationalist. And the line, the title line is, Your strength as a rationalist is your ability to be more confused by fiction than by reality. If you're equally good at explaining any outcome, you have zero knowledge. That's, so, yeah. that's, that's on the uh, boilerplate title page of my uh, PhD dissertation. Nice. Really? Uh, the, 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 if you're equally good at explaining any outcome, you have zero knowledge. Yeah. Nice. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. Good, I- sticker, good tattoo. Yeah. Yeah, mm. it would be. Yeah. yeah. So, man. All right. Small digression. The only, uh, like, when you're describing your mom, like having just like any model is better than no model and not realizing that she's making up stuff as she, like on the fly or not caring that she is. Yeah. It makes me think of that scene in Methods of Rationality when they're all trying to explain some big plot event that I don't want to spoil. But hmm. it, they're people who have been part of like the cult of not the cult of Harry, but like in, <laughs> in, in his way, in his sphere of influence. And they're like, well, luckily we're all perfectly sane, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah man, right. man, it must have sucked to be like the rest of those people. <laughs> and like, that's what I feel like right now. <laughs> I know. Uh, with the same sense of irony. Yeah. I often, I still don't notice confusion. It's a skill I need to work on because, I don't know, lots of time when you're reading fiction, it may not be perfectly written. And you're like, okay, so the author flubbed a little here, but I don't want to be taken out of the story while I examine every little detail. So whatever. I'll be slightly <laughs> confused and it'll clear up in a chapter or it's two. the same thing you're doing in like the whole rest of your life. Well, this yeah. is confusing. I don't want to not have my life make sense right. maybe this yeah that seems fine <laughs> yeah. all right, all right I'll, I'll i'll permit myself two other quick sidebars one i'm super gullible and i'm trying to work on that i don't I've know had why that problem too yeah i don't I, i'm just i'm we I'm, are a high trust community no but even as a kid i would believe the dumbest shit and it <laughs> took like it would take minutes for it to go away like my biology teacher and my chemistry teacher in high school were both ex-hippies with beards and uh, one of them explained to me like, oh yeah, we're actually, we were, we were twins joined at the beard as kids. <laughs> and like, I spent like a minute unpacking that in my head. I'm like, that's not possible. But like, I so, I so trusted my, my teacher who was telling me this that like it, 
I spent a good minute dissecting that. Like, there's no way that's true. It's gotta be a metaphor for something. What is it, that? What is beard? I, I, but but for for a solid minute, I was trying to work into my world model how two people could be born joined at the beard. And yeah, so again, this is not like a oh yeah, you could convince five year old Steven something. This is uh, I don't know if I'd be that stupid today, but anyway. you know Jesse Cannonball Jenkins. Mm-hmm sometimes just has the the flat affect deadpan kind of joking that he does with people yeah and people like him i hate those yeah (laughs) because they hold a straight face and so when they just bullshit me i'm like really they're like yeah i'm like oh okay and (laughs) the nice ones then say like no man i'm just fucking with you but every now and then i go around believing something for months and it turns out it was just someone fucking with me i had a coworker like that and i could share stories that were as humorous as that but i'll save it and just jump on one thing that you said about assuming bullshit um my wife found something last night. We got a new cat that we're both terrified that something bad will happen to it. Something bad happened to our last cat, uh-huh. and she Wait read. She read that, uh, um, like the stuff in jet dry like wipes on the wood floors is toxic to pets. Uh-huh. And it, then she showed me, or actually, she went up to go look at the box in the closet. So I looked at her phone because it had the article on it. It was just a picture like shared on Facebook or something. And I'm like, oh, this is all the kinds of bullshit that people see. So I immediately called bullshit. But I didn't want to be like, it's fine, you know, it's bullshit, and just call after her. So I went and looked, and then I actually read the thing, and then I was like, all right, you know what? Let's check to, to be 100% sure, because I'd be willing to bet you $100 right now that I'm right, but let's be sure. And there was a Snopes article that actually had the exact cut and paste. This is just a thing that's been going around for years. Um, nice. So, good job. But, but yeah, calling bullshit, I think, is, is a good default. Uh, and not to say push it away as bullshit and never accept the fact, but say, no, nah, I'm not going to believe that right away until I verify it, which brings us to our next less wrong post. Our next less wrong post is... Oh, snap. I lost my position. I defy document. the data. Thank you. The title of the post. Would you like to give the synopsis? Uh, sure. Uh, it's, it opens with, uh, one of the great weaknesses of science is that it's this mistaken idea that if an experiment contradicts a dominant theory, we should throw out the theory instead of the experiment. Um, and I, I agree with what you put in uh, brackets there that I don't necessarily think that's true, but that is sort of what you're supposed to think. Like, oh, we've just falsified uh, Newtonian gravity. We yeah. need we, It's out. Throw it away. Um, maybe that's like the perceived ideal in high school science or something. I think that's um, closer to it, yeah. But that's not how science really works. And, and also, like, this was written during the time of the great atheism debates on the internet, and a lot of, you know scientific proofs of god not existing or scientific proofs that faith may have magic powers you know were around at the time and uh basically lay people were using science very much in this sort of way that like this experiment proved this and this and therefore science is on my side and so i don't think that like scientists necessarily maybe ever treated it this way but a lot of the at the time the common perception was that this was sort of a thing but i think this is one of these rare cases where uh Eliezer's lack of formal training in an actual academic setting uh, shown through a bit because I'm not sure real scientists thought that. I, I feel like 10 years ago, I would have I would have uh, just believed this as it was, but like especially after reading a lot of Scott Alexander's posts about philosophy of science, I would I, I agree with you guys. It's it's that's that's not how it works and that's not how it's supposed to work. But um, I mean, the, the post, I think, is salvageable mm-hmm. despite that. Um, yeah, because there's there's a there's lessons that you can take out of it that aren't necessarily about the truth of how academia works, right? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, basically, he's saying like if if you get if you get a new piece of data that it's it's that, that's why I think it's related to the previous post. It's like if you if you get a new piece of data that doesn't make sense to you and it's just one piece of data, then you can just say, nah, 
<laughs> you get one free nah and then and then give kind of the world a chance to prove that you know get get, get a better get a better experiment or, or something like that i think yeah he says that if it contradicts the standard model it's an important fact mm-hmm. that needs to be openly acknowledged and i think he he goes farther than that which i like when he says he he like almost coins this term defy the data which i mean never caught on or anything but he he pointed out that like it would be interesting if experiments like this that contradicted the model were published and with the note published but defied where someone you know important member in the community could be like i defy this data i don't think it's true and then you know there would be ongoing follow-up experiments well, or something this was posted before the uh it was the before the replication, replication crisis. crisis yeah which so in that wonder, sense kind of foresaw it yeah coming i don't know if that had anything to do with that but uh I do remember that was, I thought they kept going through the rationality community where people were talking about uh, wishing that falsifications had more status. Mm -hmm. Uh, Publishing like new data was always the highest status thing to do. Doing new experiments. Yeah. um, Exploring new areas, but like replicating uh, and falsifying or confirming stuff was always kind of it never made the front page of journals <laughs> and i think that's one of the reasons we had the replication crisis yeah. no well, one who wanted to have a career in this would bother replicating things mm-hmm. it was not something i got published and no one would pay you to do an experiment that well we already know that works right right yeah. so and turns out there was p hacking involved and you know other bad things yeah. i think there was something that came out recently that showed even a bunch of meta analyses tend to be skewed yeah where that's kind of upsetting yeah but also kind of predictable yeah he even says you know if someone defied the data scientists could say i'm holding my breath waiting for replication rather than having to take sides and <laughs> like literally that's now what we do whenever i see a new article i'm like well i'm gonna wait for that to be replicated recently in the discord someone posted something about a uh, potential faster than light communication which first off i just dismissed offhand but it could maybe i don't know the physics behind this shit so i'm just like well i'll wait for it to be replicated yeah. because this is a popular science story about some possibly anomalous finding. And every, I mean, when I was on Facebook, every six months, I'm going to come across the front page that would be like, oh, look, we've got a cure for Alzheimer's. And I'm like, yeah. I saw this three Those years ago. Those are the ago. worst, yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the science reporting is so bad. Yeah. I don't even look at very much of the science reporting unless I know that it's from a source that, like, very, is very, very diligent about, like, fact checking and posting all their sources. But generally, I'll go right to the publication. I really love the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. It's mm-hmm. a podcast because specifically they ride this hobby horse a lot. They're like, these are the current popular articles. This is why the news you're reading is fucking stupid. In the actual um, research, that's not what it says at all. Because generally, the articles you read are, you know, a reporter with maybe a little bit of science background reading this and finding the most crazy headline they could make to grab people's attention. Or right? not even like, yeah, like I, I so, remember a bunch of times looking at some crazy headline claiming something and then going and looking at the actual article it was based on and showing that it was actually saying the exact opposite yeah. of what the headline said. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And so Skeptics Act to the Universe does that almost every week where they're like, here's a thing that's been published. You might hear about this from your crazy friends soon, but uh, this is what the actual study was. Man, I used to be on Facebook like being the asshole that was like the one person out of my 20 friends who have shared this thing being like, and here's the Snopes article. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I feel like I like made some enemies with people. Uh-oh. Yeah, that's my role on Facebook as well. <laughs> and then I just like mostly stopped going on Facebook except to share memes or to use Facebook Messenger with my few friends that refuse to use any other messaging app. I really got to get that new one 
Riot, is it, that Matt was talking about? What? The new message app? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I The only reason I have Facebook I have so is to many messaging apps wrong now. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's like, can we use less messaging apps? I like Discord. I've basically stopped using Slack entirely in favor of Discord. Mm-hmm. I do like Discord. It's It has a few flaws, but um, for the most part, that would be nice if... I keep trying to find some kind of... Oh, this is such a tangent. App <laughs> like app Messaging app aggregator. Um, mm-hmm. They claim to exist. There's a few that I've tried. None of them has impressed me yet. If any listeners know of one that works really well, I'd really appreciate a recommendation. I like now Discord. I'm going to shut up. I like Discord because it has all the strengths and flaws of the old IRC yeah. channels. I like it, but like, what, what about your good. friends that won't use anything but Facebook Messenger? Yeah, like they're I not mean, on there's Discord. There's a reason I so still have Facebook. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all right. So, they actually are dead to you. <laughs> well, no, I use Facebook Messenger. Oh, not, do you? Not yes, Facebook, okay, yeah. all right. Um, I mean, so all right, back to the post. So, yes. so here, you know, the, the anticipated reaction. I'll play the part of the of the person that he's reacting to. Well, so so Eliezer, you're you're telling me that the the person that says, oh well. Um, I, whatever experiment after experiment keeps showing that vaccines aren't causing autism, but they, they just get to keep saying, I defy the data. That seems like a really stupid argument you're making there. He says specifically, you can't defy the data on multiple experiments. At that point, you either have to relinquish the theory or dismiss the data by pointing to a design flaw or a larger body of experiments that fail to replicate it. He, yeah, he specifically is making this a, you can defy the data one time. It makes a lot of sense because, like, just file drawer effects by themselves are enough to explain away, like, oh, we we did one experiment that came up with a really weird finding. It's like, well, yeah, if you use a, a, a what is it, a confidence interval of 0.05, it's going to happen all the time. Yeah, there's lots of noise and data. Yeah, all that means is, okay, run run a real experiment on that topic now that you have found that finding. So, yeah. Well, he, so- he does try to make um, replication higher status by this. I think it seems almost like this seemed like a hack to try to get more things replicated because mm-hmm. if someone prominent defied the data publicly, then, you know, that would be news. And then the replicators could get their names in, in the journals as the people who, you know, either confirmed or, or uh, not deny, but defied, confirmed or defied <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the defile confirm or deny defi- the defile and then <laughs> god damn it denial denial thank you and then the person who denied the data either gets more status for you know sticking their neck out and defying this data or gets to make look like an idiot when the replication went through and they're like oh okay my bad i guess yeah. or they get they get props for defying de- or yeah for denying the data when it looks deniable right yeah. that's how it should be it's right just, or it's just neutral um, yeah. it, it would be good to have a hack that makes replication higher status somehow yeah yeah but interestingly on. in that sentence about you either have to uh relinquish the theory or dismiss the data um neither of those are or you have to update your your model and say that you were wrong and the data is actually right Right. i'm surprised that wasn't wasn't one of the eithers Um, (laughs) he does say defying the data admits that the data is not compatible with your theory sticks your neck out so your head can be easily chopped off yeah people are like ah turns out your theory was wrong mr Feynman." reminds me of uh einstein like some experimental result disagreed with his prediction for like some eclipse measurement mm-hmm. and he was like they did their experiment wrong <laughs> nice <laughs> yeah um and what turned it was funny because it turned out that they did do their experiment wrong but his prediction was also slightly wrong but then he had a chance to correct his theory by the time the next eclipse rolled around or, oh. or, or the next experiment so but he came out looking good obviously yeah because he's einstein yeah so. but to your point what you were saying yeah i do think people can and often do take this 
to a way big extreme where they're like i just defy any data that doesn't fit what i believe yeah but by that by that point you're not playing in the spirit of the rules and you're gonna be able to, you're just rationalizing anyways so, yeah. yeah yeah which is an unfortunate accident thing. accident of english language history that <laughs> rationalization and rationality are so closely uh uh tied together yeah um Want to wrap this up? Yeah. Think of hatred and call it a night. Uh, let's see. Oh, for next time, our oh, yeah. uh, our less wrong posts will be absence of evidence is evidence of absence and conservation of expected evidence. There was a whole book I read on that first post um, huh. that I think before I read less wrong, and I'd like to know if uh, oh I had his name when I started that sentence and I forgot it, but the book was called God: The Failed Hypothesis. And he says that the lack of elephant footprints and droppings in Yellowstone National Park are, are evidence that there aren't elephants that live there, right. is, the, is the example that he gives at the That's beginning. by Victor Stinger. Thank you, yes. Oh. Who used to teach, I think, in Boulder. I think he subsequently has died. Um, I missed a talk that he went to, um, and I really should have gone. Hmm. But yeah, Victor Stinger uh, wrote that book. It's nice to have somebody with a computer handy. Hmm. Um Yes. Before we thank our current patron, uh, I want to say that the previous patron that we thanked, uh, which was a while ago now because we didn't do one on our live episode. We thanked Thunk. We thanked Thunk and <laughs> talked for a bit about uh, who this Thunk person might be. Turns out Thunk is uh, a channel on YouTube creating educational videos. Oh, cool. They yeah. have their own Patreon. And it turns out that uh, if someone on Patreon... Um, patronizes us i guess donates to us <laughs> i don't know what the term is we can just click on their name and go to their thing so yeah yeah so i found thunk after we thunk after we thanked them and and uh i love saying that yeah. um and yeah i found their videos and it's really cool so everyone check out thunk's youtube channel right which i don't know how to like hashtag a youtube channel but i'm sure if you search thunk education or something or whatever we can on... post a link in the show notes that's probably the easiest way to do it youtube's a, a weird spaghetti mass so it seems like this would be like up our alley too i haven't seen any thunk videos yet but uh like episode 179 the most recent one is called rationality without justification Ooh. so yeah seems like uh oh and there's 179 episodes yeah how long are they uh i'm assuming since it's youtube it's like 15 minutes or less maybe that's a weird assumption to make uh, 10 minutes for episode 179 perfect all right. Sounds I great. That's about yeah, the attention span of people watching YouTube. I yeah. Think. <laughs> Every now and then there's an 18 minute video on YouTube and I'm like, that's just too long for me. <laughs> well, that's I, why I make you watch some it to X speed, right? Yeah. I make some um, exceptions like ContraPoints is always awesome. Um, but usually anything longer than 15 minutes, I'm like, this is not the time I have allocated for YouTube. Anything that's like two hours on YouTube, I, I like I've got that ContraPoints that's been open for like a month on my computer or uh, one of their <laughs> videos has the big one that made the rounds recently has been open since it came out. But I have to have my browser open the entire time. Mm -hmm. It's like, now put this on a podcast app and I can pause awesome. and play and leave the app. That'd be great. Thanks. Yeah. I you usually... can do that because you pay for good YouTube. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's worth it. Yeah. Also rip it as an MP3. That's true. Yeah. I usually Steps. things that like, uh, you know, things that are really long, like debates uh, that I watch sometimes. It's stuff that I'll do at work while I'm doing bank reconciliations or whatever. I can so, dig it. Yeah. All right. But the patron that we are actually thinking this week is, whose turn is it? I think it's been a while since I've done it. Okay, go for it. Jonathan Mast. Thank you so much for your support. You're super awesome, and this podcast wouldn't happen without you. If this sounds rushed, that's because it is, because uh, we've overstayed our, not our welcome, our window <laughs> at Inyasha's house where we, where we record. So, Jonathan Mast, thank you very much. You have helped make this decade a good one for this podcast anyway, so partly the rationally commu rationality community, and you know we're going strong to the next one. That's and right. You're the first patron thanked of 2020. Ooh, that's true awesome you know what i'm gonna do i have the cyberpunk 2020 rulebook still i gotta scan that and then post it on my facebook telling people this is the future i was promised <laughs> it is it is not the future i have 
I mean, I'm, I'm pretty happy with my future where I can, like, wear a VR headset with a brain stimulator <laughs> in my underwear in my, like, living room. I mean, <laughs> I, I am glad that I'm not living in a burnt-out urban hellscape while the mega-rich do whatever they want. Hey, give on it the give other it to hand, the election cycle. Right. You know, you know, hold your breath. On the <laughs> other hand, I really would have liked to be able to hack into the Matrix with my brain and, you know, have guns wired to my nervous system. Well, well it's only January. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> call Elon Musk. Maybe the Neuralace will be coming out, you know, second quarter of the year. We don't know. Nice. All right. We should wrap it up. Okay. Thank you, everybody. This was great. We'll see you all in two weeks. Good awesome. night, everybody. Bye. Oh, and big shout out again. Thanks for Matt for coming. This was great. Uh, of course. My we'll, pleasure. We'll Open link Duke's stuff on the uh, show notes as well. Yes. Thanks. Awesome.